Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over a hundred casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. Eighteen plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Are you searching for the best in online black radio? Then go to BlackTalkRadioNetwork.com, helping you filter through the noise. Real talk. Black Talk. The internet is full of half-truths and all-out lies. We've all seen them, and many people on social media complaining about it. Here's your chance to show and prove. WorldAfropedia.com is a black-owned and operated encyclopedia. There are several thousand articles, but we need help. We can't uncover all the truth ourselves. So please, join us and become a writer, editor, or blogger for WorldAfropedia.com today. Every little bit counts. We owe it to the future generations to put the truth out there. Visit WorldAfropedia.com, the African-centered encyclopedia, a global database of African knowledge for the purpose of bringing about global African wisdom and understanding. WorldAfropedia.com Sylvester! Mama, it's all right. Mama, go on. Johnny! Sylvester! You know the whereabouts this Jesse Hunter? I do not. You rest them man will kill Sam Carter yet? Don't you get up there with me. I've come to warn you. There's some boys over there in summer that let on if they was you. They wouldn't let sundown catch them around here. Well, they ain't me. Sir. Won't you be a good boy and go visit some of your other relatives for a little while, huh? I am trying to help you here. They're all over there right now getting all full of liquor and making nooses. You hear that? Sheriff, if you really want to help, I appreciate it if you wouldn't allow them boys to come around here. Now, I was born and raised in Rosewood. This here's my home, and I'll be damned if I'm going to let anybody run me off it. Now, you can tell them boys that. Tell them your damn self. Context of white supremacy. Gusty Renegade in for another broadcast, hopefully to share constructive information on the system of white supremacy. Today's date, Thursday, May 16, 2019. So I have been told. This is our 11th study session on James Lowen's Sundown Towns, A Hidden Dimension of American Racism. Uh, the audio segment that you heard at the beginning, that was from the late John Singleton's Rosewood, uh, his 1997 film, uh, Exchange uh, Between 
Sylvester, played by Don Cheadle, the great uh, and the white enforcement official trying to be a helpful white man, advising the Negroes to kindly exit town before the liquored up race soldiers come to make trouble. Lots of similar incidents have been recounted in Mr. Lowen's text. We are closing in uh, on the conclusion of the text. I will continue to share commentary from listeners who've written in. Uh, if you have comments, if you are listening to the archives, what have you, and want to email untiljustice at gmail.com, we'll share as we go. Uh, continuing to learn, hope folks are taking advantage and maybe sharing some of this information with older black people that you have in your life, asking them some questions. If any of this is familiar, take advantage. Speak to older victims of racism. They probably can. I'll give you some real life experiences, uh, memories about what we are reading with that. James Lowen, Sundown Towns, Context of White Supremacy. This is audio segment number one. Developing a reputation. The best way to stay all white, many communities concluded, was to behave with such outrageous hostility to African-Americans who happened by or tried to move in, that a reputation for vicious white supremacy circulated among African Americans for many miles around. Historian Emma Lou Thornborough told that sundown towns built anti-black reputations in Indiana during the nadir. By 1900, for example, Leavenworth, the county seat of Crawford County, had the reputation of being the most anti-Negro town on the Ohio River. Captains of riverboats were said to discipline African-American crewmen by threatening to put them off the boat at Leavenworth. By 1900, there was only one Negro resident in Crawford County. Today, African-Americans as far away as Florida and California know and spread the reputation of Pekin, a sundown town in central Illinois. Achieving a similar notoriety is the rationale for the otherwise irrational refusal of gas stations in some sundown towns to sell gasoline to African Americans. After all, most motorists do have enough gas to get to the next town, and they'll carry with them the message that Pena, Martinsville, and other towns that had this policy are to be avoided at all costs. Often the first thing said to an African-American in a sundown town was to ask if he knew the reputation of the town. Even pet Negroes as local whites sometimes referred to them, were in trouble as soon as they ventured beyond the specific town or part of town where they were known. Aaron Rock Van Winkle, born a slave and owned by Peter Van Winkle, whose son-in-law was a state senator from Rogers, Arkansas, was in Rogers on business according to an article in the 1904 Rogers Democrat. In a joking way, one of our citizens said to him, See here, Rock, you know that sundown don't want to find a Negro in Rogers. The newspaper went on to relate the quip with which the old Negro reproached the white man. Nevertheless, the white man's statement, 
while perhaps said in a joking way, was also flatly true. Both he and Van Winkle would have known that it was not to be challenged directly, and that saying it was a warning, the first step in enforcement. Some places have built national reputations as sundown towns. From east to west, these would include Darien, Connecticut, the Levitt towns in New York and Pennsylvania, Forsyth County, Georgia, Cuyahoga Falls and Parma, Ohio, Dearborn, Gross Point, Warren, and Wyandotte, Michigan, Elwood, Huntington, and Martinsville, Indiana, Cicero, Pekin, Pena, and Franklin and Williamson counties, Illinois, Cullman, Alabama, the Ozarks as a region, Idaho statewide, Vidor and Santa Fe, Texas, and several suburbs of Los Angeles. Especially in the African-American community, these reputations endure. This colored person in Florida knew of Pena, Illinois, and its reputation, a woman who grew up in Pena related, and that astonished me. Virginia Yearwood, a native of Pierce City, Missouri, reported that African Americans with whom she worked in the 1970s in California knew about Pierce City's anti-black policy. Reputations are even more important within metropolitan areas. A 1992 Detroit area survey showed that 89% of white respondents and 92% of blacks thought that residents of suburban Dearborn would be upset if a black family moved in. As a result, only 37% of African Americans rated Dearborn a desirable place to live, compared to 66% of white respondents. Of the black respondents who ranked Dearborn undesirable, 78% cited the racial prejudice of its residents as their reason. Many residents of sundown suburbs such as Dearborn are happy that African Americans consider their town undesirable. Then less enforcement is required to keep it white. Moreover, a reputation as overwhelmingly white is part of a suburb's claim to social status. At the same time, residents of Dearborn don't want their city's reputation to get out of hand. While they're proud to be from an all-white community, at the same time they know enough to be ashamed. To put this another way, many whites want their town or suburb to have a certain notoriety in the African-American community for unfriendly police and unwelcoming residents so long as this can be accomplished without giving the town a black eye, as it were, in the white community. Sometimes reputations can get out of hand. Tamaroa, a town of about 800 people in southern Illinois, excluded African Americans perhaps around 1900. I didn't find anyone who claimed to know how or when but every person I talked with from Tamaroa or near Tamaroa knew that the town had become infamous as 
the rock throwers some time later. A member of the Historical Society in nearby Pinckneyville, also a sundown town, told how African Americans from the nearby interracial town of Duquoin occasionally walked along the railroad tracks to go north. As they passed through Tamaroa, white youths would throw rocks at them. On one occasion, the stoning got out of hand and they killed a man. A woman who grew up in Tamaroa, now living in a senior center in Duquoin, confirmed this account. They stoned one to death. She was indignant at her town's resulting notoriety. People all around call us rock throwers, but that was so long ago. The Pinckneyville historian suggested that Tamaroa's reputation didn't rest on that one incident. Another African-American tried to run through on the railroad right-of-way, but was grabbed and castrated, and a third was hung. Asked how he knew about these incidents, he replied, Several residents of Tamaroa told me those stories. One man told me he witnessed the hanging. They took him down and burned him on a brush pile. In a sense, Tamaroa's notoriety is unwarranted, however, because the town doesn't differ from hundreds of other sundown towns. Indeed, the generic nickname for slingshot across the United States in the first half of the 20th century was nigger shooter. Moreover, white reactions to this day to an African-American in a white neighborhood anywhere in America often include fear and hostility. In the 1970 feature film Watermelon Man, African-American director Melvin Van Peebles depicted a comical example. Police in a white suburb respond to phone calls from homeowners frightened by African-American actor Godfrey Cambridge, a white suburbanite who suddenly turned black during the previous night. Cambridge is merely jogging the same route he did the day before when he was white. As David Harris noted more recently, jogging through white neighborhoods remains problematic not only in the movies, but also in real suburbia. The 1964 Civil Rights Act made little difference. Some of these problems might have eased with the passage of the 1964 Civil Rights Act, but that legislation was aimed at the South and was not enforced in sundown towns, most of which are not in the South. Thus, the 1964 law left all white towns and suburbs largely untouched. Many towns simply didn't obey it for decades. We weren't allowed to serve any colored after sundown, said a woman who had been a waiter in the mid-1970s in Arcola, Illinois. A white man came in and said, I have my buddy in the truck. Will you serve him? He then served the friend at the booth getting the stuff from me at the counter. Telling this in 2002, the woman was proud that she let that happen, in violation of the rules. In 1974, Dale Leftridge, 
one of the first African-Americans allowed to become a railroad engineer in the United States, took trains to South Pekin, Illinois. Ten years after the Civil Rights Act outlawed racial discrimination in public accommodations, the Chicago and Northwestern Railroad had to post a security guard from the train at the motel because the townspeople didn't want blacks in their town, in Leftridge's words. Two years later, a black social worker from the state office in Madison had to stay at a smaller motel outside of Sheboygan, Wisconsin. She couldn't stay at the main hotel within the city, according to June Rosland, then also a social worker in Wisconsin, and she had an MSW, Masters of Social Work. Nick Kahn in Paragould said that when he bought his motel in 1982, no motels in town let African Americans spend the night. Paragould had been a sundown town since 1908, when its forty black families were ordered to leave at gunpoint. The restaurant across the road locked the door on two black Union Pacific Railroad workers staying with him in 1983 when they walked over and tried to eat there. Police came and accused the African Americans of trying to break in, according to Kahn. The white boys in the restaurant were cracking up over it. The black guys were so scared. After that, they never used to go out. If I'm outside, they'll come out, sit in the chairs. But if they go downtown, they'll get arrested. So they bought takeout fried chicken at Kentucky Fried Chicken and ate it in their rooms. How are these things possible so many years after the Civil Rights Act? Enforcement of the law, which should have depended on the federal government, in reality depended on African Americans. Black pioneers tested restaurants and motels across the South, sat wherever they wanted on buses, and sometimes got beaten or killed for their trouble, forcing the government to act. Having no black children, Sundown towns had no black students to desegregate their schools after 1954. Having no black populations, these towns had no African Americans to test their public accommodations after 1964. Members of the St. Louis chapter of SNCC, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, responsible for so many Southern sit-ins, did announce to the media that they were going to test restaurants and motels in Williamson County, Illinois, shortly after the passage of the Act. Almost every community in Williamson County, and adjoining Franklin County, was a sundown town then, including Benton, Carterville, Christopher, Heron, Johnston City, Mulkey Town, Royalton, Sesser, West Frankfort, and Ziegler. The Williamson County Sheriff talked with all the motel owners and restaurant owners and told them they had two choices, according to Jim Clayton. Either they could accommodate them, and they'd all go back to St. Louis, or they could refuse, and all hell would break loose. They complied. Afterward, they put their signs back up. White only, or 
management reserves the right to refuse service to anyone, and Williamson and Franklin counties disobeyed the law for another two decades. Today, many sundown towns exhibit a pattern exactly opposite to that found in the classic pre-1954 segregated southern city, and many northern ones. Back then, black travelers usually could neither stay in the city's hotels and motels nor eat in its major restaurants. But African Americans were allowed to live in the city, albeit on the wrong side of the tracks. Today, most motels and restaurants in sundown towns serve African Americans without a second thought. But blacks still can't live within the city limits. Throughout the expulsions, the prohibitions, the shunning, and all the other acts that sundown towns have used to stay all white, all the while an individual pet black, such as Aaron Van Winkle in Arkansas, sometimes an entire household, has often been allowed to stay. The next chapter tells of these anomalies. African Americans permitted to live usually without much difficulty, in towns and counties that nevertheless designated themselves sundown. Chapter 10. Exceptions to the Sundown Rule Laurel Beckman, reference librarian of the State Historical Society of Missouri, said in 2002, During my life, I've heard oral history of at least two instances in Missouri where one or a few ex-slaves or their descendants were allowed to remain in a county or town, but any visiting blacks were quickly informed that they were not to let the sun set on them. It's as if there were an unspoken feeling of these are our blacks and they're okay, but other blacks are unwelcome and dangerous strangers. Towns that took great pains to define themselves as sundown towns have nevertheless often allowed an exception or two. Within their otherwise all-white populations, occasionally an African-American person, or even household, was at least tolerated and sometimes celebrated. When Pena, Illinois, for example, forced out its African-American population in 1899, whites didn't force the black barber and his family to leave. He had an exclusively white clientele and many acquaintances, even friends, in the white community, and no one had a complaint about him. Pena did post sundown signs at its corporate limits, signs that remained up at least until 1960, and permitted no other African Americans to move in, so it definitely became a sundown town. Other towns have let in more temporary intruders, flood refugees, soldiers during wartime, college students, and visiting interracial athletic teams and their fans. What experiences do these exceptions have in towns that by definition do not allow them to be there? 
What are their lives like? What difference, if any, do they make? African-American Servants Many African-Americans in sundown towns were or are servants. In a way, they don't violate the sundown rule because they don't live on their own. Huntington, Indiana is so anti-black that two residents reported in 2002 that its police still stop any African-Americans driving through and warn them to get out of town now. Yet a black couple lived in Huntington in the 1920s and 1930s. They were servants in the household of William Schacht, owner of a rubber factory and one of the richest people in town. She was the family's maid and cook, he their handyman. They lived in the Schacht house, but their movements were circumscribed. They couldn't go downtown, a few blocks away, without problems, according to a man who grew up in the town in those decades. They spent most of the time indoors, and they had no children, so there were no African-American children in the schools. At the same time, after the 1919 riot in which whites drove out the African-American population of Marion, Ohio, home of President-to-be Warren G. Harding, Local lore has it that there was one black family left in Marion after the riot, writes Harding scholar Philip Payne, and that the woman and her family remained because she'd been the Harding's maid. Also, her husband was the barber, so he knew, serviced, and in a limited sense was friends with upper-class whites. In the suburbs, these live-in exceptions were common. Laura Hobson's novel about anti-Semitism in Darien, Connecticut in the 1940s, Gentleman's Agreement, pointed out the town's practice of not letting Jews or African Americans live there. Meanwhile, when she wrote, Darien had about 150 African Americans, mostly female, live-in maids, gardeners, and the like. Similarly, Kenilworth, Illinois, the richest suburb of Chicago, had a population that was 4.3% African American in 1930, all live-in servants. On the West Coast, Beverly Hills, a famed affluent suburb of Los Angeles, had 397 African Americans in 1920, almost 300 were female. The imbalance implies that at least 200 were live-in maids. In fact, probably every African-American was a maid, gardener, or other live-in servant, because the total of 397 included just four children, all girls, who probably assisted their mothers or were older teenagers working on their own. This sexual imbalance then worsened. By 1960, Beverly Hills had 649 African Americans, of whom 554 were females. Often these exceptions were codified into law. In 1912, Virginia passed a law providing for all white and all black neighborhoods or towns. 
it shall be unlawful for any colored person, not then residing in a district so defined and designated as a white district, or who was not a member of a family then therein residing, to move into and occupy as a residence any building or portion thereof in such white district, and vice versa. The act immediately went on to make the exception, Nothing herein contained shall preclude persons of either race employed as servants by persons of the other race from residing upon the premises of which such employer is the owner or occupier. After the Supreme Court invalidated such laws in 1917, suburbs switched to the restrictive covenants to keep out African Americans. Typically, those covenants similarly exempted servants, as did this succinct example from Chicago suburb Villa Park. Said premises shall not be conveyed or leased to or occupied by any person who is not a Caucasian except servants. Examples in my collection range from California to Minnesota to Vermont to Florida. When entire suburbs made it their policy for all neighborhoods to be covered by these covenants, they became sundown towns. After World War II, for example, South Pasadena, California, did so, according to this 1947 newspaper report. The city of South Pasadena, California, provides an example of the extreme to which the trend toward restrictive racial and religious covenants can go. In South Pasadena, restrictive covenants, denying persons not of the Caucasian race the right to live within its municipal boundaries, are a matter of official policy. The city administration has been charged with promoting the program under which the entire city will be blanketed with restrictive agreements. South Pasadena is to be completely white. Of course, persons not of Caucasian ancestry will not be completely barred from residence in South Pasadena. The restrictive covenants specify that non-Caucasians may reside in the city as servants, caretakers, and in similar menial work. Non-Caucasians may work in the city in other capacities, but they must be outside its limits by nightfall. Again, live-in servants didn't and couldn't constitute real exceptions because they couldn't live within the city limits on their own. Often their children couldn't live there at all. Maids and gardeners with children sent them to live with relatives. Sometimes, as in Texas's park cities, the suburban school district or the maid's employer paid for her children to attend schools in the central city. Sundown suburbs thus ensured that the only African Americans their white children would meet were servants in positions of inferiority. Like the shaft servants in Huntington, live-in servants have often had to practice invisibility. There were African-American maids in Johnston City in southern Illinois in the 1920s, but they weren't allowed out of doors after dark, according to Jim Clayton, a Washington Post reporter who grew up there.
A former resident of nearby Heron spoke to historian Paul Engel around 1950. Some Heron families do keep hired Negro help in their homes overnight. I had a Clarissa who lived with me for four years. The old feeling of being out of the city limits by dark was still with her, however. She didn't like to answer my door after the evening meal and usually stayed right in her room. She never appeared on the streets after dark. Angle's informant seems to locate her maid's feeling within the employee, but town policy was to blame. Her acts were prudent and would be appropriate in Heron for several more decades. A member of the Batesville Historical Society told of a prominent family in that southeastern Indiana town who employed black maids, chefs, chauffeurs for business functions. Those employees were told to never be on the streets at night. Their housekeeper, who worked for them on a more permanent basis, would only go outdoors to attend the earliest morning mass at the local Catholic church. As in independent sundown towns, servants in sundown suburbs have also had to watch the sun. In the late 1940s, for example, Lois Johnson, who lived in Glendale, a suburb of Los Angeles, would see maids running to the bus stop so they wouldn't be caught there after dark. In 1940, among 81,992 residents, Glendale had 68 African Americans, three to one female, surely the ratio of maids to gardeners and chauffeurs. They included just two individuals under 21 years old, both likely maids in their late teens. Probably all 68 were live-in servants, who apparently had no more freedom to poke their heads out of doors after sundown than black servants in Huntington or Heron. Even more constricted were the lives of servants in Wyandotte, Michigan, the sundown suburb near Detroit who stayed indoors day and night. Writing in about 1945, Mabel Bishop Gilmer told of a high-class type of Negroes, descendants of slaves of George Washington, and so named Washington. They were the servants she knew as a child in the wealthy Bishop family. These Negroes, sensing the Wyandotte attitude, never left the house to enter the streets, but sent the bishop children on errands for their personal needs. Sometimes African-American servants even got in trouble while on their employer's property. In 1948, a graduate student from Panama and his wife came to Norman, Oklahoma, home of the University of Oklahoma, accompanied by their black Panamanian maid. According to a student at the university at the time, one evening at sundown, the maid was hanging clothes out on the line. Apparently, someone reported her to the police because they came and arrested her and took her to the station. She was frightened because she couldn't speak English and didn't know why she was picked up. Her employer got the maid released and, I believe, got the university administration to talk to the police so the maid would be safe from police harassment. Surely no one in modern America, outside of prison, 
has lived more restricted or more fearful lives than these lonely live-in African-American servants in intentionally all-white communities. Over time, however, live-in maids, gardeners, and other domestic help became less crucial to the lifestyle of even the rich and famous, and certainly of the middle class. Gas, oil, and electric heat eliminated the need to stoke the coal furnace. Washers and dryers decreased the work on wash day. And gardening and landscaping got redefined as a hobby rather than a chore, at least in the middle class. We see this change in Darien, for example which showed 161 African Americans in the 1940 census, 112 in 1960, and just 75 in 1990, always three-quarters female, because maids outnumber butlers and gardeners. Similarly, by 1960, the proportion of African American servants in Kenilworth, 4.3% in 1930, had fallen to 1.3%, and in 2000, 0.2%, just four individuals. Gross Point, Michigan, had 140 African Americans in 1940, 36 in 1960, and just 11 by 1980. These statistics reflect the decline in live-in servants in America not increased white supremacy in Darien, Kenilworth, or Gross Point. Hotel Workers Sundown towns often allowed hotel workers after dark. Such porters, waiters, maids, and others don't exactly violate the sundown rule because they don't live in a residential neighborhood. In the 1930s and 40s, and possibly later, an African-American lived in the basement of the Pacific House Hotel in Effingham, Illinois. He made a living driving a team of horses hitched to a coach, supplying rides from the railroad depot to the Pacific House and elsewhere. A man who lived in Miami Beach in the late 1940s and early 50s tells that Miami Beach was a sundown town then, but made exceptions for hotel maids and busboys and Sarah Vaughan. Like Darien and Beverly Hills, Miami Beach's African-American population was more than three-quarters female and included almost no children. Bill Alley of the Southern Oregon Historical Society tells of one African-American man in the 1920s, George Washington Maddox, in Medford, which was otherwise a sundown town. Maddox, a dwarf, shined shoes at the Medford Hotel. In southern Pennsylvania, for decades, Effort had but a single black resident, George Harris, a barber who first came to town as a seasonal employee of the Grand Mountain Springs Hotel Summer Resort in or around 1848 according to Cynthia Marquette of the local historical society. He moved here permanently in 1882 and remained until his death in 1904. Marquette adds, After Harris died, no black persons lived in Ephrata for decades. In 1960, 
Ephrata had 7,688 people and no African Americans. I must note that Marquette goes on to add, In my 18 years at the Historical Society, I've never encountered any suggestion that their presence was forbidden. However, three residents of nearby communities tell that the Ku Klux Klan recruits in Ephrata and holds an annual march there, and that they hear that African-American families usually move out soon after moving into town. Like servants, the lives of these hotel workers could be remarkably constricted. Indiana writer William Wilson told of his aunt and uncle who ran The Tavern, a hotel in New Harmony, Indiana, in the 1920s, and of Aunt Minnie's Lizzie, the only Negro permitted to live in the town. She had a room in the hotel and never went out on the street, day or night. She must have had a great deal of what we used to call inner resources. Certainly she was a finer person than the group of intolerant white people in the town who made it necessary for her to stay indoors. Some white communities wouldn't abide African Americans even as household servants or hotel workers. When a horse breeder from Kentucky, who'd bought a farm in Washington County, Indiana in 1888, brought a black stable hand to care for his horses, there was so much excitement that the stable hand had to be sent back to Kentucky. Five years later, a visitor from Louisville, who brought a black cook, was forced to send her away because of threats of violence. A wealthy visitor to Utica, Indiana, had a hard time securing permission to bring his carriage driver into the town because no African Americans were allowed within the city limits. A newspaper in Springdale, Arkansas, itself a sundown town, told of an event in nearby Rogers in 1894. A hotel in Rogers employs a colored boy to wait on the tables, and one night recently some person posted a notice on the gatepost warning the proprietor to discharge the boy or steps would be taken to rid the town of his presence. The notice was signed Citizens. Apparently the boy left. The River Park Hotel in Wyandotte, Michigan, had African-American waiters in 1880 and 1881 who sang beautifully, according to a newspaper account, but apparently were later expelled. Seven years later, the manager of the hotel arrived with a retinue of colored servants, but whites in Wyandotte expelled them, too. In 1880, three African-Americans, two barbers and a cook, came to Bluffton, Indiana, the cook to work in a local hotel. Historian Emma Lou Thornbro writes that all three received written notices that they must leave, and the proprietor of the hotel who employed the cook, as well as the sheriff of the county, received warnings to get rid of the Negroes. They did. Refugees, Soldiers, Students, and Other Transients Even large numbers of African Americans have sometimes been allowed in sundown towns when they were clearly temporary, and when human kindness overrode the sundown rule. 
Johnston City, Illinois, provided an example during the 1937 flood of the Mississippi River. As its town history recounts, on January 20th, we received word that some 200 flood refugees were to be brought here from around Mounds and Mound City. Eventually, this number grew to 287, and these homeless people were housed in the Miners Hall, the Baptist Tabernacle, and abandoned stores. About half the refugees brought here were colored, and although the town had the reputation of never permitting a black to remain overnight here, they were welcomed with courtesy and kindness in 1937. Of course, the gesture was easier because the refugees were never perceived as possible residents. From the start, whites understood their sojourn was to be only temporary. When the danger of flooding had passed, the black people were transferred to Wolf Lake, the account concludes, the white refugees to Anna. During World War II, Camp Ellis in west-central Illinois had some African-American troops. According to a local lawyer, Lewiston, an all-white community, opened its restaurants, taverns, theaters, and other public places to African-American servicemen. Lachlan Crissy, the local state's attorney at the time, wrote, The attitude adopted by most of the people there was, well, they're soldiers, the same as our boys, and if they're shot, they bleed and die the same way. Therefore, the Negro soldiers are free to enter the restaurants, stores, taverns, picture shows, and other public places. Other sundown towns around Lewistown were not so hospitable, as Chrissy went on to say. This was the exception, and not the rule. Again, Everyone in Lewistown knew that the soldiers were never going to stay there permanently. Many towns that would never let them stay in houses permitted African-American and African college and prep school students to live on campus. Again, it helped that townspeople knew the students were only temporary. In the 1960s, missionaries of the United Brethren Church in Christ recruited students from Sierra Leone to attend Huntington College in Huntington, Indiana, the college for that denomination. The town let the Africans live on campus. Indeed, they could even get haircuts in town, while African-American students could not. Pretty much the same thing happened at Bethany College in Lindsborg, Kansas a sundown town founded by conservative and lily-white Swedes in 1869, in the words of reporter Matt Moline. Except at Bethany, the Africans were from Kenya rather than Sierra Leone, and were Lutheran rather than Brethren. Similarly, African students attended Chapman College in Orange, California in the 1960s, according to history professor Harold Forsyth, one of the first African-Americans to attend Chapman. They were perhaps among the first blacks allowed to spend the night, and told Forsyth it was a tough town in which to live. Darien, Connecticut has no college, 
But beginning in the early 1980s, its public high school let a few African-American girls, mostly from Harlem, attend under the aegis of A Better Chance, ABC, a program that sends minority teenagers to prep schools and affluent suburban high schools to prepare them to enter elite colleges. To avoid the long commute from New York City, the girls live in a group home in Darien. But again, whites know there's no chance that they might stay after they graduate from high school. Most sundown towns were not hospitable even to transients. The response of Elko in southern Illinois to majority white but interracial religious meetings was typical. In 1923, William Souders, founder of the Gospel Assembly Churches, established a camp meeting at Elko. He continued to lead religious revivals there for 18 years. But Elko residents were upset because Souders allowed people of all races to attend these meetings. In 1941, World War II and local opposition caused him to abandon the Elko camp meeting. Having a Protector Now we move to the real exceptions. African Americans who lived on their own in towns that didn't allow African Americans to live on their own. Some sundown towns made exceptions not just for live-in domestics, hotel workers, and students, but for an actual independent African American household or two. This pattern was more common in the non-traditional South, Appalachia, Texas, and the like, than in the North or West. In areas where slavery had existed before 1865, elderly black couples made use of the faithful slave stereotype, so beloved of whites seeking to defend the peculiar institution in their minds, to persist in otherwise all-white communities. Often they became locally famous and were remembered decades later with affection. When whites drove out African Americans from all or parts of six counties southwest of Fort Worth, Texas, in 1886, for example, they made exceptions for a handful of old ex-slaves in Hamilton County, including Uncle Alec Gentry and Aunt Morn Gentry, both about 80 years old. When released from slavery, they were taken to Hamilton County by their former master and given a patch of ground and a log cabin. They've lived there ever since, in the words of Hamilton's Centennial County History Parade of Progress. Even in northern communities with no tradition of slavery, Aged ex-slaves were sometimes the only African Americans allowed to stay when towns went sundown. According to local historian Terry Keller, when Anna, Illinois, drove out its African Americans in 1909, they exempted one old lady who had been a slave. In the quote at the head of this chapter, Laurel Beckman makes clear the exceptional position of individuals such as these. 
Many counties and towns in Appalachia, Arkansas, Texas, and the Midwest show a slowly diminishing number of African Americans between 1890 and 1930 because they didn't allow new blacks in and their Uncle Alex and Aunt Morns gradually died or left. Even though they lived independently, ex-slaves who remained in sundown towns typically had white protectors, often their ex-owners. Protection was important. Doc Pitts, the only African-American in Beaver Dam, Wisconsin, was the trusted servant and groom of Judge Silas Lamoureux, President Cleveland's general land commissioner. When the judge returned home to Beaver Dam, he brought Pitts with him to care for his horses. Initially, he existed under the protection of Beaver Dam's leading citizen, but after the death of his employer, Beaver Dam allowed Pitts to remain. A town history published about 1941 referred to Pitts as the town's black. After Pitts's death, Beaver Dam had no black resident. When whites in Corbin, Kentucky, drove out their African Americans in 1919, they missed Nigger Dennis, the Mercian's man, according to historian Hank Everman, referring to one of the wealthier families in town. During the 1919 riot, the Mercians and Dr. Seiler hid him for several days while other blacks fled Corbin. Dennis stayed on and so did the beloved Aunt Emma Woods, in Everman's phrase, a fine cook, laundress, and cleaning lady, and possibly Dennis's mother. In 1930, whites tried to lynch three African Americans in St. Genevieve, in the boot heel of Missouri. Frustrated by state troopers, the whites turned their wrath on the entire black population. The only African Americans to stay were the extended family of the custodian of the Catholic Church, who was shielded by the priest. Even with defenders, some sundown towns were too dangerous. During the 1886 eviction of African Americans from the counties southwest of Fort Worth, Matt Fleming, who owned a butcher shop in Comanche County, offered the services of his shotgun and himself to protect his two colored employees if they wanted to stay, according to Comanche County historian Billy Bob Lightfoot. They left anyway. To keep you from getting into trouble, Mr. Fleming. Of course, the employees may also have mistrusted their chances for survival, with only one protector against the wrath of the community. One of the town's doctors refused to have his Negro maid driven from her home, continues Lightfoot, but a visit from the mob made the girl insist that she be allowed to go to Dublin. The doctor finally gave in and drove the girl across the line himself. Other Survival Tactics Some African Americans managed to survive without a protector. Sometimes maintaining a low profile worked as a survival stratagem for African Americans who lived independently. 
After the 1908 race riot in Springfield, Illinois, when small towns all around Springfield were expelling their African Americans, residents of Pleasant Plains made an exception, ordering all blacks out except for one elderly couple who were old and law-abiding. When Ambrose Roan, probably the only African-American man in Porter County, Indiana, died in 1911 at the age of 66, the Chesterton Tribune called him a hard-working, peaceful man of quiet, unassuming ways. The tiny town of Hazel Dell, Illinois, a few miles south of Greenup, had an African-American blacksmith. According to a Greenup resident, he simply disappeared at sundown and you never saw him again until morning. The fact that his occupation was simultaneously useful and archaic, thus not a threat to most whites, probably helped ensure his safety. Living in such non-residential places as above a downtown business worked for some African-American individuals, though not for families. Huntington, Indiana, would never let African-Americans live independently in a neighborhood, but it allowed an elderly African-American man to live downtown in an otherwise abandoned upstairs room above a store. He was called Rags and made a living by washing windows in the downtown area. He, too, was tolerated but watched, according to an elderly Huntington native. Overt identification with the white community was another survival tactic. Such blacks became tonto figures, taking pains to associate with the white side, differentiated from the hordes of blacks outside of the city limits. White workers in Austin, Minnesota, repeatedly expelled African Americans, and Austin became a sundown town. But like many others, it allowed one African American to stay, the shoeshine boy. Union member John Winkles tells about him. And I'll tell you a good one. So one time we had Frank, I forget his last name, he was shining shoes in the barber shop, and then afterwards he bellhopped for the bus in town here, and everybody liked him. He'd never go in the packing house because he knew he couldn't. He didn't want to go there. So one day I was walking along, and here came a couple of niggers, and they stood there by the bridge facing the packing house, and Frank says, You know, John, he says, when the damn niggers start coming into this town, I'm going to get the hell out of here. And he was black. He was black. He didn't want him to come into town either. But we never had no trouble with Frank at all. Indeed, they didn't. Frank knew with which side of the color line he had to identify if he was to remain in Austin. Often the one African-American in town becomes a celebrity, in a perverse sort of way. Everyone knows that person, including their harmless eccentricities. Piety is good, as is always having cookies ready for neighboring children, or going by a nickname but not voting, wanting to work at jobs where whites also work, or attending civic meetings. 
African Americans who played this part well became genuinely liked by whites. Kathleen Blee, author of Women of the Klan, collected a good example from an Indiana woman in the 1980s. We didn't hate the niggers. We had the Wills family that lived right here in this township, and they were like pet coons to us. I went to school with them. Often they got known by nicknames such as Snowball for the only African American in West Bend, Wisconsin, or Nigger Slim for the father of the only black family in Salem, Illinois. Sometimes whites make a big deal out of the only African American in town. After the person's death, everyone turns out for the funeral. Decades after death, such a person may get warm, retrospective articles in the local newspaper. If there's any one character that everyone hears about sooner or later in connection with West Bend, it's Snowball, wrote Dorothy Williams in a 1980 town history. Snowball, or Elmer Linden, was a young Negro about 25 years old who was killed by two police officers, allegedly while resisting arrest in 1924. In 1936, the Chesterton Tribune in Chesterton, Indiana, ran a story, Only Colored Couple, about the death of Ambrose Roan 24 years earlier. The story goes that when Ambrose Roan found his eternity, the present Congregational Church Choir showed its respect and love for their Uncle Tom by singing a number of his beloved hymns. Mrs. Roan was so much moved by this act of courtesy that she invited the entire group of singers for a good Negro cooked chicken dinner. Man, I do not have my composure at all. Uh, I have said uh, decades. 10 years context of white supremacy, I normally mute myself, right? We have uh, Professor Woods was with us yesterday, white supremacy in film. I'll ask a question, you know, blah, 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 and I'll mute my line, even if we have listeners call in. When you all call in today, you make your commentary, I mute my line. You know, that way if I have to giggle or yell or call names or whatever it is, you all don't hear me. I was doing all of the above right when the audio segment ended. And I knew the end was coming. I'm sitting here looking at the audio tick down and I'm reading and I'm seeing I'm about to have to talk. And I'm, I was stymied. If, it, if people are familiar with boxing, you can get a standing eight count, right? It's, you haven't quite been knocked down, but you have definitely been staggered. Uh, they have to give you eight seconds and see if you can continue. You look a little wobbly. I would get a standing eight count like Pet Coons. I think that was the beginning of it. And from that point forward, I lost my composure. I had to go back and reread. I was giggling a little bit and whoo, Pet Coons. Context of white supremacy, getting it together. Uh, so first section of the book club will pick that was see, And it got me both ways. It was right there and it was all the way to the end at chicken dinner. That was the second time I said, man, that James Lawn, I think he's practicing racism with it. <sighs> we finished the first audio segment. I'm still trying to get it uh, because it was so much just anyway, just between Coon and Chicken Dinner. 
If you have commentary that you would like to share and you are composed, you are not <laughs> doing all of the things that Gus was doing uh, during the last uh, page or two of the reading, the number to dial is 605-313-5164. The code 564-943-POUND. Press... <laughs> Press star six one if you would like to participate. No, at that number again, six zero five three one three five one six four. The code five six four nine four three pound. Press star six one if you would like to participate snowball <sighs> i'm going to try to read some of the commentary that people uh wrote in this week as well this book is a little longer than i anticipated i don't know why i thought we were like close to the end we are not uh folks who dialed in star six one if you have uh commentary uh if you are flummoxed and need a few moments. I totally understand because I'm still trying to gather myself. Uh, let's see. Uh, the folks who dialed in with a hand up line should be open. Proceed. May I be heard? Yes, ma'am. So thank you for taking my call. Hello, everyone. Um, the the chapter ten. I definitely think that he was practicing racism because just all the different references. It just seemed like it was just nothing but racial theater. I don't, I don't really know what, I forgot what term we had used, but it almost kind of reminded me of like the hate you give in a sense, because, you know, all the chicken dinners and you couldn't wait to say things like that. And then I also picked up one, I think that was chapter nine, um, but pet. The, the pet nigger and he said it was the pet nigger and his name was Aaron uh, Van Winkle if I'm not mistaken but the main things I want to point out from chapter nine was just his just the author's uh, use of words and definitely being very deceptive and uh, Tamaroa the part about Tamaroa he had said the stoning got out of hand when someone was killed and I don't know, I know that's a metaphor, but I don't know when it's okay to throw stones at someone. So any other time, just as long as no no Negroes died, it didn't get out of hand. So I, I think that that was just definitely an, an act of racism. But a lot of things from Chapter 10, just the black, except, uh, the black exceptions to the sundown town rule. And the first word that I thought about was uh, traumatic. Because and especially how he kept elaborating, elaborating on, you know, well, even one uh, black maid, she basically just stayed in the room. I think there were several of them, but I think one was just in a in a hotel room and they spoke about how resourceful she had to be. Well, if you have a whole town of racists and you have no other means of taking care of yourself or um, helping out your family, it also made me think about the warmth of other sons, how they how. Um, Black people would go up north to work and then send money um, back down south. So um, just what else do you expect? And then brought up Marion, Ohio again with uh, 
um, their expelling of the black people, which um, I don't know, I, it that it, it really makes sense. I actually went back and read uh, some of the other segments that I missed out on, and there were a couple of cities in Ohio, um, one that I had spent some time in, which makes sense that why I was only like uh, like my little our little quote unquote black family um, was one of the very few in the whole school. Uh, so that made sense. It was just, it was really surprising. And then there was another city where a family member, they had went to school. So I guess maybe she would have qualified as an exception, uh, you know, just as long as they knew that she would be leaving. But anyways, back to chapter 10, uh, there was also a reference to descendants, uh, there was a slave people. So the descendants of the enslaved people owned by George Washington, I think they were referred to as upper-class Negroes, which again, I think that that is him being very deceptive or, you know, him actually just, I don't, I don't, uh, a very racist way of joking around. How can someone be considered upper-class, but then they're still, uh, maids and they're still being, um, racially oppressed or terrorized rather he also used another uh i thought it was odd the the turn of phrase of him just referring to some black exceptions the stable hand that was bought i I forgot what city that he was brought into but there was so much excitement over him that he had to leave and when i think of his excitement it could just be me being an heir but i think of people um it's like a positive feeling like they're happy that something or someone is around. Um, but I, I thought that was, again, maybe I can be wrong or, or what have you, but I didn't, some of these words that he's using doesn't seem correct. Uh, the last thing I'll point out was the fact of how just him still speaking of the exceptions and one of these quote unquote pets, uh, highly traumatized uh, and terrorized black people in one of these sundown towns and how they had died and or how when they would die everyone would turn out for the funeral and I thought that that was a sense of um, racial necrophilia and not in a sense of them being uh, supportive or being saddened by the death of a, a black person that they've helped to terrorize and I'll meet my line thank you much obliged, read Warmth of Other Sons, Isabel Wilkerson, spectacular in the book club uh, and one of Gus T's top five all time spectacular book. Wow. Um, yeah, very important point about uh, the rock throwing racist children getting, quote unquote, out of hand, which is a metaphor, but yes, it getting out of hand, whatever that means. Uh, I guess if, as you said, no niggers had died, then wouldn't have gotten out of hand. Sling them, sling all the rocks you want, boulders, whatever it is. Whew. I do want to make sure I get in, man. Now, the last couple pages of this chapter, I was cracking up quite a bit and not composed at all by the time we got to the lab. Uh, pet coons, snowball, chicken dinners. I lost it uh, for a variety of reasons. <clears throat> that said, before it got to all of that, this was like, oh, not uh, enjoyable 
like I did learn a lot, but like, wow, it was traumatizing almost just hearing uh, some of the information that was presented this week. That was the feeling that I had prior to about the last three or four pages. Other folks who dialed in, if you have commentary to share, proceed. Yes, ma'am, you heard. Greetings, Mr. Demry Four. Greetings, Gus. Greetings to the other callers and listeners. Uh, Mr. Demry Four here. <clears throat> All right, if we had any doubt uh, that the author was practicing racism before, after this reading, uh, it's been confirmed. Um, there was a lot of references uh, that confirmed it. Um, when he started to talk about how the local whites call it, calling blacks uh, pet Negroes, and like the last call, the female caller uh, was talking, they would show up at the funerals um, like they loved the uh, black people that were the exceptions to the rule in these sundown towns. Uh, but <clears throat> you can see from his uh, from his book that when whites talk about loving black people, they speaking in terms of loving them as pets, animals, coons, or chimpanzees, monkeys, whatever. You know, like they uh, recently this reporter uh, posted something about the the race of the uh, raw baby in England as a chimpanzee. But he made references to uh, giving the town a black eye. I hope I hadn't got gotten ahead. I was kind of late getting in on the reading, but. Um, talking about slingshots uh, were called nigger shooters. And, you know, like I said, a lot of this stuff is true. He makes some truth in, and then he uses his own brand of uh, references to bring home these points. Um, it just shows how violence and racism is engraved ingrained in our society. Uh, he said uh, that the, the first black engineer, they allowed him to be the first black engineer. I guess that would be true, but it's just an odd way to put that. And it looks as though if a black person was not serving or entertaining in these sundown towns, or qualified as some faithful slave status, then uh, they were not allowed. And if we think about during this period of time, you know, before, let's say 1920, you know, before the, and, you know, a lot of people had cars, they had these uh, horse driven carriages and well I guess horses and basically walking so when they would run you out of town you know think about it a lot of people probably had to leave on foot <clears throat> if they had a wagon or a horse or whatever if they had time to get it but um, 
it's just horrible and um, something it seems as though you're saying that when he's talking about the exceptions, the black exceptions in the sundown towns could not come outside with and, and they had to practice invisibility. You know, I mean, it seems as though he's putting in these little puns at the wrong times, you know, but we find, we know the jokes are grievances. And it's talking about Rogers. I had a question if uh, anyone on the line uh, know of any connection um, between sundown towns or all white suburbs beginning with the name Santa, you know, like Santa Fe, Santa Monica, whatever, you know, all these different Santas, it seemed to fit into a part of this code. And then uh, he said that some blacks fell under protection, but in a scenario like this, uh, I don't think that uh, there was any protection and especially from uh, a priest. And he said that blacks were tolerated, but watched. And um, uh, see, intentional use the example. Yeah, use an example of the black man that was saying um, he's going to leave too when the niggas started coming, you know, and. He made a lot of references to being Lily White. When he's referring to the to the perpetrators of violence and terrorism towards the blacks, he seems to speak in pleasant terms. But when it gets to black people, we're we're uh, talked about in uh, in, in negative and uh, uh, repulsive terms. I'll mute my line, Gus. Thanks for taking call. Much. Much obliged, Mr. Demry, for nigger shooters. Uh, other folks, star six one, if you have uh, comments, questions you would like to share uh, on the first portion of the reading. You were right on time, uh, Mr. Demry, for uh, with where we were in the book. I, too, even thought the use of the term uh, black eye, that is a metaphor, but uh, that it might give the town a quote unquote black eye if it's known that they are about terrorizing Negras, I thought that was suspicious uh, invocation of a metaphor on the part of Mr. Lowen could be an act of racism. Uh, let's see. Uh, I pulled up. Yes. Notes. Uh, one reader writes one observation in this week's reading was the details given regarding the administration of the sundown system it would be interesting to learn more about how administrative ledgering evolved and how that administration continues to be used uh, i have been peeking at blockchains and ledgers come up a lot um <clears throat> i think he's given much obliged uh person writing in i think he's given a lot of different details with regards to the administration of these racist towns and how that administration evolved. Uh, sometimes it would be codified in law. Sometimes it would be codified uh, in either the covenants. He said this week, sometimes it would be state uh, or locally codified or in the county. Uh, other times not. 
they would deem it, you know, we don't need to have this written down. Everybody classified as white knows what the rules are and will act as an administrator themselves, including the children. I think that's one highlight. It seems the children have a key role in the administration of these uh, racist towns, sundown towns, if you will, unless I've been misinformed. But that seems to be a huge point that uh, nigger shooters, nigger shooters. I'll pause right there. Nigger shooter. I looked, man. Mr. Lowen, suspected race soldier. You all have pointed out a myriad of examples from this week. We've done that throughout the time that we've been reading the text. Wow, I have learned a lot. I have never heard anyone refer to uh, a slingshot or anything like that as a nigger shooter. This is why I'm totally opposed to any sort of uh, sanitizing and redacting. Oh, no, we're not people. Called him nigger Dennis. No, no, no. His name was Dennis. We're just going to leave that out or we'll call him N word. And that <laughs> let's make it plain. What was said that way everybody can get accurate information about the system of white supremacy. That's what we're missing. So this is from <clears throat> the University of Wisconsin, mentioned in the book University of Wisconsin Madison, their dictionary of American regional English. I so love these types of websites. We should get. Uh, one of these good white people who helps do this sort of research on the evolution of terms as a guest on the program, because they also have nigger flipper, nigger shooter as well. Nigger chaser also. Uh, but we're just sticking nigger shooter because that's what we came for. So a slingshot. 1866. Galveston Daily News. Nigger shooter is the name of a newfangled machine, which is general, which is in general use amongst the boys for throwing shot pebbles and china berries how the name nigger shooter was adapted for them the sapient youth of galveston alone can tell <laughs> that is quoted from 1866 uh, allegedly uh from uh the newspaper down in tech the first thing i thought of was uh the half has never been told gtt gone to Texas. That was the first thing I thought of, but that's, uh, we're closing in on 200 years. You know, we got a little ways to go, but I mean, wow, we're closer to 200 than a hundred. Um, nigger shooter being used by the young boys. And it said how the name nigger shooter was adopted for them. The sapient youth of Galveston alone can tell. Now that right there is curious as though they know I didn't forget where I deviated. Seemingly white children were administrators of the system of white supremacy, sundown towns, uh, the rock throwers. That was meant they got out of hand. We've heard repeatedly. He said that throughout white children. That was their job. Go out and hurl rocks at the niggers and they would go back and tell stories with their fathers. That was the tradition of white terrorism being passed. And boy, I was throwing rocks at that nigger and had him. I guess it didn't get out of hand then because they just, you know, got him to hurry up and get out of town. That is a part of the administration. And again, 10 years of the cow. So we have nigger knocker, nigger shooter. Why would, in a system of white supremacy, you continue to crank out terms like that and apparently torture devices like that? Why do you need a nigger knocker, a nigger shooter? And that these are widespread in use, apparently. Nigger shooter, <laughs> that this has been going all the way back to 1866. Uh, the administration part, I, I do think, is key. And as I said, I think that's been pointed out in a variety of ways. 
Getting to some of my specific notes. Let's see here. The best way to stay all white, many communities concluded, was to behave with such outrageous hostility that they would get a reputation for vicious white supremacy. He started the chapter or this week's section uh, with that. I thought that was really important uh, to have a whole town. We want to be notorious for terrorizing niggers. That way we'll keep our town all white and that'll be something we can brag about. Uh, The next, he says, talk about curious phrasing. He says that, uh, let me get the specific area. He says, Leavenworth, the county seat of Crawford County, had the reputation of being the most anti-Negro town on the Ohio River. How would you even gauge such a thing? <laughs> like, uh, Negroes are being lynched and murdered and raped left and right and purged out of town. How would you even begin to gauge uh, such a thing that, oh, yeah, they really, I mean, we lynched, you know, 12 Negroes last year. They lynched 55. I mean, next uh, pet Negroes. The first thing when I heard this, uh, I believe Pamela Evans Harris uh, used this term uh, or one very close to it in black. <laughs> Woo! In black love is a revolutionary act. Worst book I've ever read. Woo! I have my library, so I could pretty easily turn around. Uh, and I know I said something about it. That is in the cows decade in the archives uh, i said something about that on the program because that is name calling uh that we should not be identifying black people as quote-unquote pet negroes and then come to find out that this is how racist have been all of coon all of it nigger all of the terms generally that we use uh to degrade other black people frequent i'm not gonna say every time but frequently we got those insults from the coon man. Stop all of that name calling. Just reiterating, repeating what we've heard from racists. Uh, next. He says after these towns worked hard to get a reputation for terrorism, that at the same time, they know enough to be ashamed. Talk, he was talking about Dearborn specifically. I have no idea how you, <laughs> where is the evidence that white people anywhere, Dearborn or anywhere in the known universe, are ashamed of practicing racism. Not wanting to be caught. You have criminals who don't want to be caught. That is totally different from I feel shame, remorse about having mistreated, violated, you know, the coons. Nigger Dennis. Next. Black Eye was right there. I already said something about that. Uh, He mentioned... Melvin Van Peebles, Watermelon Man. I have seen that many times. I would definitely recommend that film. We talked about film yesterday. That This film, I think, came out in 1967. Don't quote me on that, but I'm close. Uh, that film came out before Sweet Sweetback's Badass Anthem, which is uh, what I think he's most known for, Melvin Van Peebles, in addition to being Mario Van Peebles' father. Uh, but that is such a great film. Um I can give you the quick synopsis. What is uh, black male, or it's a white male, white male, racist man? As you heard, he would go jogging every morning. He would jog and race the bus every morning on his way to work. He would go to work and be crass and rude and racist all day long. Uh, and he suntans. Wellsing moment. Uh, 
somehow he ends up turning black overnight mysteriously and he tries bathing in milk and going through all these rituals to get his whiteness back he can't do it and he stays in the house and sulks for the first couple of days he finally goes out to work and he tries to do the same thing he's always done he goes out to race the bus and he gets accused of rape and theft they call the police on him like it's uh it's incredible like he the, oh the neighbors now we have a nigger living on our property they call and harass them so this, these are his neighbors he's lived there for years so he knows the voices it's you should watch it it is a f- incredible film it is designed to be a comedy but it reveals so much truth about racism white supremacy it is spectacular white people are not ignorant for him to mention a film an obscure film like this even though it did get a lot of attention uh he critically acclaimed film i think in 1967 uh let's see oh 1970 i could just read the notes it's right there uh next the chapter on hotel workers he says he's talking about these couple black people that are uh allowed and he says the uh talking about the hardings they i guess were maids of Future President Harding, uh, her husband was the barber, so he knew, serviced, and in a limited sense was friends with upper class whites. I have no idea how a black person in any of these positions, the exceptional black person, the bla- the, the pet coon, the pet negro, snowball, I have no idea how any of these people can be described as being friends with whites just because I shave racist man once a week, twice a week, every day, we are not friends. I mean, what is, even is your definition for friend? That That's what I mean about word use. I think a lot of y'all fabulous. We've pointed out lots of different words in the text. You got a bevy to choose from that seems suspicious. If not, in my view, word choice of someone who is a racist. Next. The breakdowns, gender breakdowns were interesting, uh, not allowing that many black people at all. And then seeming to be uh, substantially more black females to come in and be terrorized, raped. That was not included. I'm going to say that that was a major act of racism. Uh, I put that. I forgot to make a special note of that. For as informed as he is, Mr. Lowen, all of this research, this book is gargantuan. Like I said, we're not close to the end. This book is substantially footnoted. Watermelon Man is a black filmmaker. That's why I said I stopped a long time ago. The people that were saying, does he quote black sources? Absolutely. It's thoroughly researched. For this book to be that well researched, you would have to know about black females being raped, uh, that black maids and such, the help being raped. That's a huge part of the story. Isabel Wilkerson uh, includes that explicitly. I made a sound clip uh, from that portion uh, of the book, but she talks about it repeatedly. Uh, it was a huge problem with one of the main uh, characters in the book, Ida Mae Gladney. For that not to be uh, included in all of this, major act of racism, because I'm sure he's not ignorant about all that. That said, I did think that was uh, interesting. Certainly not an example of back black patriarchy, I don't think. Um mm-mm-mm. I thought it was important. He said that because these racist towns didn't allow black people in at all, except for servants, 
that the only time white children would see black people, they would be in a servile role. That is training right there. This is how Negros are supposed to function. Next. Uh, the language, this is now, this is language from uh, a historian, Paul Engel, who's being uh, quoted talking about uh, the Heron family. So this is not the, the wording of Mr. Lowen, but I still think the language is important. Some Heron families do keep uh, hired Negro help in their homes overnight. I had a Clarissa and Clarissa is in quotes who lived with me for four years. The old feeling of being out of the city limits by dark was still with her. And I'm going to stop there because even Mr. Lowen points out that he locates the problem as her feeling as opposed to we terrorize Negras. She, she was rightfully, logically terrified of going outside for fear of being killed, raped, whatever could have happened to her. I think it's equally significant. The language of I had a Clarissa again, non-humans, man, not woman, not you are a thing. That fungibility uh, that Dr. Curry talked about. I, I've never heard such phrasing. Uh, I had a Clarissa. Uh, very easy to rape in that sort of context. This is not a person. This was, you know, not Clarissa, beloved, who worked for us. She was wonderful. I met her children, not a human being. It's, I had a Clarissa. Next. I thought this was another slick act of racism. Perhaps on the part of Mr. Lowen, same as with the chicken references in the book. Um, when he says he's talking about how over time you have fewer of these live in black servants in white towns, white houses. He says gas, oil and electric heat eliminated the need to stoke the coal furnace. That's the first example given as to why pet coons are no longer needed. Don't need them to stoke the coal when black people have been referred to as coal, charcoal. Those are racist terms to reference black people. And that is the second time with charcoal specifically. I think there was an example because I cited that one before I could find it in like 60 seconds if I really needed to. But it was earlier. It was a random anecdote where a reporter asked a question to a black person and they said he wouldn't want to go into that child uh, town for a bag of charcoal. That's the second time. Uh, and I pointed it out when we read it before. That's the second time there's been a charcoal reference specifically. This is not a quote from somebody else. That's the example that he said. He goes on. It's from charcoal. We don't need niggers for charcoal. Washers and dryers decrease the work on wash day and gardening and landscaping got redefined as a hobby rather than a chore. Those are the illustrations. So we start with coal, then we get to laundry. Things that I think most people would think about if we're thinking about Negras and the help. Uh, we saw the movie, right? Loved it. Academy Award. They were not shoveling coal. I don't think that's what most people think of when they think of black house servants. It's driving the car, taking care of the children, washing the dishes, cooking fried chicken. That's what they showed us in the movie. Not shoveling coal, unless I'm talking crazy. Next Uh, I didn't know if retired firefighter heard the part they mentioned uh, Miami Beach and the racism there. The making they said uh, we made exceptions for hotel maids and bus boys 
and Sarah Vaughn. And I thought that was so important because I think Red said before, what are we talking about? Upper class Negras, high class Negras. You got coons and coons and coons. Even the pet coons are still coons. That's what you got in the system of white supremacy. Even so-called Sarah Vaughn, victim of white supremacy. Next. Uh, I thought it was significant when he pointed out how they would uh, allow uh non-white people born on the continent might look like someone who'd be classified as black, but they're born in the place of the world known as Africa. And so they could come here and, oh, okay, you're born on the continent. Oh, no problem. We'll let you come in and, you know, give you a sandwich, sell you some gas and allow you to do things that we would not allow our pet coons who were born in the U.S. We would not allow them to do these things uh, and how that was one of the exceptions. I know some people have pointed out how that can work worldwide uh, in the system of racism, white supremacy, where if a black person from the States goes to uh, the area of the world known as Brazil, they might, especially if they got their passport, they might be allowed to do things that they would not allow the local Negroes to do. Same thing, a black person from the UK goes to South Africa. They would not be treated like a Kaffir, uh, maybe unless they make a mistake, then they can pull out that passport or start talking and, you know, show off that accent and then, oh, whoop, 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 not one of our locals. Go ahead, do whatever you're going to do. Make sure you don't stay too long. Uh, let's see. Anything else? A low profile that reminded me of Mr. Fuller so much. He talked about the importance of black people keeping uh, a low profile. He said that was uh, that was key, a key survival stratagem for African-Americans who lived, quote unquote, independently, who didn't have a white protectorate or what have you, who just stayed there. Mr. Fuller says that that is how attempted counter racist shit function. Low profile, not calling a lot of unnecessary attention to ourselves. Uh, this is about where I started to lose my composure. Uh, in Huntington, Indiana, would never let African-Americans live independently in a neighborhood, but it allowed an elderly African-American man to live downtown in an otherwise abandoned upstairs room above a store. He was called Rags and made a living by washing windows in downtown in the downtown area. He, too, was tolerated, but watched, according to an elderly Huntington native Rags. He doesn't even have a, a name rag that right there again you're not human a clarissa rags snowball pet coon not a human and he was tolerated and watched <laughs> we he's just rags is just here to clean in an abandoned prison above a store and eh, watch that nigga rags you gotta be careful any uh, retired firefighter, did you have a uh, commentary that you wanted to share, sir? Uh, give me about uh, a minute and a half, two minutes. Yes, sir. Other folks, if you have commentary, the number six zero five three one three five one six four. The code five six four nine four three pound press star six one uh if any of the other folks that are on if you have additional comments feel free i had another i had a question sorry let's hear the question um i know that you have referenced the uh the part about the 
the, the black maids, and I thought of the possible sexual trauma that they may have had to go through. The only part that I can even think of that he even vaguely references any type of possible sexual trauma, he said something about a, a boy or a man saying something about a, a black female, and he said, well, that could have been his mother that he was talking about or something like that. Do you remember that part? And I thought that that was like an act of racism. So it's like he kind of possibly hints that, yes, this person, and I'm assuming this person could have maybe passed as white. Do you remember that part? I believe I do. I'm talking about. I think uh, I know the part I'm trying to go back to get it specifically, but if it's the part that I think, cause I thought the same thing at first that, uh, he might've been referencing some sort of, uh, what they call illicit sexual, uh, encounter between a white person and a non-white person. But this is talking about nigger Dennis. Uh, I'm going to read a little bit and you can see if it makes sense. Cause I think, uh, yeah, I think this is talking about nigger Dennis. So this is a black female saying maybe this is the mom of a black male. So I'll read, uh, when whites in Corbin, Kentucky, and this is, uh, the documentary Trouble Behind that I've mentioned before, it's on YouTube. You can watch very constructive uh, all about this city. Corbin, can, nigger Dennis might be mentioned. Uh, da, da, da. Whites in Corbin, Kentucky drove out their African-Americans in 1919. They missed nigger Dennis, the merchant's man, according to historian Hank Everman, referring to one of the wealthier families in town during the 1919 riot. The Mershons and Dr. Seiler hid him for several days while other blacks fled Corbin. Dennis stayed on, and so did the beloved Aunt Emma Woods in Everman's phrase, a fine cook, laundress, and cleaning lady, and possibly Dennis's mother. Dennis would be nigger Dennis. Does that make sense? Okay. Yes, that that makes sense. Um, Thank you, because I kind of got confused with that. All right. Thank you. Mm Mm-hmm. And right below that, this is what I mean about this portion was depressing. Uh, They said, uh, in 1930, whites tried to lynch three African-Americans in Steve uh, Geneve in the boot heel of Missouri. Uh, Frustrated by state troopers, the whites turned their wrath on the entire black population. (laughs) uh, We couldn't get the three niggers we wanted, so we'll kill all the niggers that we can find here. And that that has happened repeatedly with whites. Uh, Before I get retired firefighter, we did have other folks who wrote in. Uh, Second listener who wrote in. Number one, the chapter provides examples of the scientific precision that racist man and racist woman, racist child, used to subjugate their victims. The description of the barracks-like dormitory by Elizabethan College in Pennsylvania made to straddle the line demarcating the sundown town and the gross point system demonstrates this. Two, the section on Parma, Ohio, suburb of Cleveland, was interesting to me during the 1960s and 70s uh, Palma was ridiculed by white comedians on local Cleveland television shows. There was a late night television show on weekends, Goulard, which showed old horror films and interspersed skits titled Parma Place. The show was geared towards young people. The skits never discussed racism, of course, but focused on ridiculing the Polish ethnicity of the people in Parma. 
Was this a tactic to distract or minimize the racism being practiced in Parma? That is fascinating. Wow. I never heard of that. Uh, Continuing, Percy Julian Oak Park, Illinois, mentioned in the chapter, was a brilliant research chemist and first African-American member of the National Academy of Sciences. I found it interesting, given the length of this book, that no specific information was provided regarding this remarkable person. There is a PBS documentary regarding his life. Wow. Number four, the state of Indiana has been mentioned often in this chapter and often in the book. During the 1940s, while racists were terrorizing black people throughout the state, Nazi prisoners of war camps were placed in small towns in the state, Windfall, Indiana. The United States was quite proud of the fact that it adhered to the Geneva International Conventions for the Treatment of Prisoners of War during World War II. The so-called prisoners of war worked in factories and were paid money. Years ago, I met a racist suspect who told me about these places in Indiana. His mother lived near one, and she told him that they held dances at which the Nazi prisoners attended and they freely walked throughout the town. This was also a period in which the United States held Japanese-American citizens in concentration camps. Negroes, too, in concentration camps. You heard it in the book here. They got pet coons. Who, that is a concentration camp. He described it as a prison. That's the same thing. Pet coons, you're kept in a storeroom above, you know, some race soldier's house, and you can't even poke your head out. Those are his words. That's a concentration camp. That would be even a better title than Sundown Town, maybe. Better phrasing. Just getting back to that metaphor I said that, you know, what are we? Retired firefighter, we'll try again. Uh, are you able to give us a few few words uh, or did you need more time? Can I be heard? Yes, sir. Yeah, I, I uh, did get a chance to hear none of the uh, uh, first reading, but uh, I did hear uh you uh, referenced me uh, when it came to Miami Beach. And uh, I uh, think I have a, uh, a historical understanding of what was going on uh, in Miami Beach be- before it became such a popular place uh, for younger non-white black people as it is now. Uh, back, I, I, I have a, uh, my mother's oldest uh, sister. Uh, she, uh, had a, uh, passport, literally a passport. Uh, you had to have a passport to, uh, work in Miami beach, a black person. It was a a card about the size. It's generally the size of a a driver's license that, uh, had your, your name and some other uh, personal uh, identifications of yourself, and uh, and you had to uh, be able to produce that uh, when uh, law enforcement or maybe some other white person stopped you uh, and why are you are uh, here and uh, in at a certain time you had to be out because your work was finished. Uh, the great. Cassius Clay at the time, he was still called. Uh, he was allowed to train in Miami Beach, but at the end of the day, he had to uh, stay in the area that's called Overtown, which is west of the causeways that separates 
Miami-Dade County from Miami Beach. Uh, all of the black entertainers of the, of the 30s and the 40s and the 50s, after they finished their, their uh, gigs, uh, they had to uh, head west and uh, stay in Overtown. At that time, Overtown was sort of somewhat like it was called uh, the Southern uh, Harlem, in a sense. Uh, that was, you know, it, it had all these nicknames and whatnot because at that time, the the black entertainers would, after they finished entertaining the white people, it would still be something like twelve midnight, something like that which is pretty early when it comes to the weekends. And uh, from there, the uh, black nightclubs would uh, benefit from their appearances. I don't, I, don't, I don't care on who the entertainer was at that time, top entertainers, Sammy Davis Jr., whoever, they would come over to Miami Beach and do, you know, for the rest of the night, you know, they would uh, entertain that sort of thing. And the white people also, would come into Overtown to see those black people. <laughs> the ones who have it that didn't see them in, in Miami Beach or was not finished seeing them in Miami Beach, they will follow them over to Overtown and, and be entertained by them. Uh, it's some of the, the general history that's, that is uh, synonymous with uh, the book. And uh, that's all i say for right now. Thank you. Much obliged, retired firefighter. As I said, I think this is a great book. If you have older black people that you have access to, uh, to share some of this information, see things that they remember, if they, you know, can give you some extra tidbits of, you know, local history. I uh, just try to learn. Mr. Fuller encouraged that. I encourage that you can learn quite a, I think I've said that for a long time. You can learn a lot. Just local history, state history national history where you are you can probably learn a lot uh, about the administration of white supremacy racism just knowing a little bit more about the places where you reside uh any other comments folks need to get in before we get to the second audio segment i will assume folks are good if you have additional comments uh just make uh, note, and we should have ample time once the second segment concludes. We will resume. Uh, James Lowen, Sundown Towns, A Hidden Dimension of American Racism, Context of White Supremacy. We are picking up audio segment number two. Staying out of the file folder. The exceptions would need all the publicity they could get because their position was always precarious. To become widely and affectionately known, they usually displayed strong but innocuous personalities, the opposite of the low-profile approach favored by the Hazel Dell blacksmith. Often they dressed exceptionally well, or exceptionally badly. Usually they allowed, and even encouraged, whites to call them nigger. Sometimes they played a clownish role. Whites in Arab, a sundown town in the hills of North Alabama, let an African-American live in a nearby hamlet, according to a local expert who has lived in Arab since 1927. There was one in the Roof community. They called him Rabbit, 
Nigger Rabbit. Everybody liked him. He lived there until he died. These lone African Americans had better be liked by all, because if one person doesn't, even if one person merely doesn't know who they are, they may be in danger. Indeed, he blamed the anti-black nature of Arab on one guy, really, a chiropractor, an extreme white supremacist whom no one opposed. All it takes is one white person willing to attack, because it's hard for other whites to come to the defense of the person of color. Whites who do may risk being called nigger lovers and accused of the opposite of racial patriotism. What the exception to the sundown rule tries to achieve is a non-threatening individuality. Newspaper stories in the 1920s repeatedly featured George Washington Maddox for his full name and for being probably the only dwarf, as well as the only African-American, in Medford, Oregon. Casey, population about 2,500 in eastern Illinois, was a sundown town complete with a sign at its city limits saying something like, Nigger, don't let the sun shine on your back in Casey according to a nearby resident, Carolyn Stevens. But for many years, whites exempted their nurse midwife. Elizabeth Davis was locally famous as Nigger Liz, the best midwife in Clark County, and the only African-American allowed to live in Casey. Eventually, she grew old and died there in 1963. I call this the file folder phenomenon. Upon first encounter with a person different from ourselves, we all tend to place him or her in a file folder. Woman, teenager, lesbian, black, and so on. Elizabeth Davis needed to be filed as Nigger Liz the Midwife. She couldn't afford to be a little-known member of her race because then she would be filed as black first which would never do, not in a sundown county. George Washington Maddox needed his full name and his non-threatening status as a dwarf in order to live peacefully in Medford. Similarly, the sole African-American allowed to remain in Harrison, Arkansas, after its 1909 race riot, insisted that her name was Electa Caledonia Melvina Smith which shows her as a strong character, but she also let whites call her Aunt Vine, which played along with the inferior status connoted by uncle and auntie as applied to older African Americans. In a fine book on race relations during the Nadir period in Monroe, Michigan, an interracial city, James DeVries describes the file folder phenomenon. In their daily interactions with Negroes, the racist perceptions of Monroe's citizens were brought into play. The framework of the childlike Negro was raised to consciousness whenever African Americans who were not personally known appeared on city streets. Indeed, Negroes who arrived in Monroe in the early 20th century found their presence was carefully noted. 
one of Kathleen Blee's interviewees, a white Indiana woman, provides an example of file folder thinking. She agreed that it might have been all right if a local restaurant served food to a local African American in a back room. I don't think anybody would have thought anything about it. I certainly wouldn't have, of our local Negroes. But not a strange Negro. You get several of them together and they become niggers. Individually, they're fine people. To avoid being pigeonholed into this imperiled outgroup, blacks in sundown towns have struggled to establish themselves as individuals. The Suburban File Folder Surviving as the exception in a sundown town is always fraught with peril, because at any point one might be accosted by whites who see one as a nigger rather than a specific person. One must then hope that other whites who know one as an individual will come to the rescue. In suburbia, this rarely happened. There it's too hard for an African-American to create and maintain celebrity as an individual. Suburbs have less community, less Gemeinschaft, as sociologists say. There is less talk about neighbors and other townspeople who aren't known as well, and families move in and out even more rapidly than in independent towns. So it's harder for all the residents to learn that a given African-American family is okay, that they're the allowed exception. Alice Thompson, a longtime resident of Brea, California, a sundown suburb of Los Angeles, told in 1982 of one man who almost made it. There were no Negroes in Brea. They weren't allowed. We had a shoeshine man who we called Neff, and he always spoke to all the kids and everything. He had a little cigar store in front of the barber shop. Another man ran a little cigar counter, and he, Neff, had the shoeshine place. But at six o'clock, some people say ten, but I believe it was six. The bus came through, and he left for Fullerton. Fullerton has always had more colored people. He was an awful nice old man, but Brea just wouldn't allow them to be here, and I don't know how they stopped them. Who are they? I don't know. I'd say maybe the Ku Klux Klan. Fred and Mary Clark did succeed in staying in West Lawn, the sundown neighborhood of Chicago where they were the only black household. Indeed, the Clarks were no interlopers. They'd lived in West Lawn since 1893, before there was a West Lawn. Nevertheless, newcomers to West Lawn had to learn that their existence was tolerated, or the Clarks were in trouble. Even now that the Clarks are older, wrote reporter Steve Bogera in 1986, they have to worry about the reaction of whites, especially young ones, to their presence. Walking down the street isn't a pleasant ordeal, Fred says. School kids will come and throw stones. The Clarks don't even sit on the porch. They mainly stay inside the house where they're out of the way of white animosity. Mostly out of the way, that is. They still have rocks and bricks tossed through their windows periodically.
still find racist graffiti scribbled on their garage at times. Several years ago, after all of their front windows upstairs and downstairs had been smashed with rocks one night, the Clarks put the house up for sale. When people would come to look at it and they found a black was here, they'd move on, Mary says. So it wasn't no way of selling it. Many decades ago, when West Lawn had more Gemeinschaft, white neighbors helped guard the house when whites attacked African Americans throughout Chicago during the 1919 race riot. Gradually, the old-timers moved out, and the new neighbors seemed less comfortable with the Clarks. As an adult, Fred Clark has been chased through the neighborhood several times, had rocks thrown at him but his docile attitudes kept him from serious harm. Exceptions that embody the rule Even transient African Americans, by the sheer fact of their existence, can prompt some change for the better. Bus passengers might find themselves in Cullman, Alabama, a rest stop on U.S. 31, the main route from Nashville to Birmingham and Point South. During the segregation era, according to a woman who grew up in Cullman, African Americans would step off in Cullman to look for restrooms only to be turned back, and mothers could be heard explaining to their crying children that they'd have to wait until farther down the road. Mother never told us that without a catch in her voice. By the time I can remember, a bus station had been built that had a set of facilities for each race, the only place in Cullman that did, to the best of my knowledge. Those colored restrooms brought Cullman partway into the era of mere segregation, though African Americans still couldn't eat or sleep in the town, and therefore marked an advance compared to total exclusion. Similarly, the solitary black household allowed as the exception in a sundown town can humanize that community to a degree. At least whites have made a distinction among African Americans, even if only to separate out one or two Tonto figures from the otherwise backward horde. And their presence, and that of their children, does desegregate some of the institutions in town such as the public schools and the library, even if only nominally. But I wouldn't want to claim too much for this process. Allowing one African-American person or household has rarely led to a difference in a sundown town's policy or alleviated the racism that defends and rationalizes that policy. On the contrary, publicizing the African-American as an exception reminds the community that this is the only African-American allowed in the area, thus ironically reinforcing the sundown rule. Even Greenwood, Indiana, for example, a town whose hostility toward African-Americans was legendary, had its one African-American household as an exception. In the words of Jocelyn Landrum Brown, an African-American who grew up nearby, the whites in that town just loved that black family, and they didn't come to any harm. 
The Austin, Minnesota story shows another ideological payoff that allowing one household to stay when all others are driven out can have for whites, as they claim not to be racist. We're not against all African Americans, after all. Look at Frank. More accurately, whites can claim to be appropriately racist. The problem lies with those other African Americans, the damn niggers. Even Frank, and he was black, agrees. Thus, instead of allowing their positive feelings about George Washington Maddox or Elizabeth Davis to prompt some questioning of their exclusionary policies, whites in Medford, Oregon and Casey, Illinois, merely emphasized how exceptional these individuals were. In turn, this allowed whites to affirm once more how inferior other African Americans were in their eyes. In about 1950, whites in Marshall, Illinois, a sundown town just east of Casey, even declared their exception, Squab Wilson, the barber, to be an honorary white man. Afraid of losing this honor, and perhaps his white clientele and his permission to live in Marshall, Wilson refused to cut the hair of a black writer living temporarily at the nearby Handy Writer's Colony until novelist James Jones threatened him with a boycott. Interaction with people such as Frank or Wilson provides residents of sundown towns with no meaningful experience with African Americans, because such individuals take care not to reveal opinions or characteristics different from those of the white majority. Unfortunately, unless they enlist in the armed forces, most residents of sundown towns never get to know African Americans except superficially in athletic contests and from television. The impact of the exclusion of African Americans on the residents of these towns, and on white Americans in general, will be the subject of the next chapter. Part 5 Effects of Sundown Towns Chapter 11. The Effect of Sundown Towns on Whites Susan Penny of Oblong, Illinois, telling of her childhood trip to Terre Haute, Indiana, about 1978, said, And I said, Nigger, and my mother corrected me. When we're in this town, you must call them Negroes. What difference do sundown towns and suburbs make? In particular, what effect do they have on their inhabitants? Is growing up in an intentionally all-white town like growing up in an integrated town? Sociologist William J. Wilson uses social isolation as an explanation, in part, for the social pathology of the black ghetto. Here we explore the social pathology of the white ghetto, if you will, caused by its comparable social isolation. We'll see that residents of sundown towns do become more racist toward African Americans 
and also more prejudiced toward gays and other minorities. Sundown towns also collect white racists from the outside world who are attracted by the town's lack of diversity. White seems right. My research shows that residents of sundown towns and suburbs are much more racist toward African Americans than are residents of interracial towns, and also more prejudiced toward gays and other minorities. But do sundown communities collect white supremacists or create them? The question's important. If sundown towns merely collected racists, they might be doing American society a service by sequestering bigots away from the rest of us. Sundown towns do collect white racists from the outside world who are attracted by their lack of diversity. Unfortunately, they also create racists. Living in an all-white community leads many residents to defend living in an all-white community. These generalizations don't describe everyone in a sundown town, suburb, or neighborhood. Many young adults leave sundown communities precisely to experience greater diversity and escape the stifling atmosphere of conformity that many of these places foster. Indeed, if they want to be successful, young people almost have to leave independent sundown towns because these towns impart a worldview that limits their horizons. Children of elite sundown suburbs, on the other hand, are likely to move into positions of corporate and political leadership in years to come. This makes their constricted upbringing a problem for us all because sundown communities inculcate a distinctive form of obtuse thinking about American society, I have elsewhere called it sociolexia, that incorporates remarkable ethnocentrism as well as NIMBY, not in my backyard, politics. The first and mildest effect on one's thinking that results from living in a sundown town is the sense that it's perfectly normal to live in an all-white community. Even towns that went sundown by violently expelling their African Americans quickly come to seem all-white naturally. Billy Bob Lightfoot, historian of Comanche County, Texas, caught this sense when describing the aftermath of that county's expulsion of its black residents in 1886. Almost immediately, it seemed as though there'd never been a Negro in Comanche County, and within a month the only reminder was a sign on the public well in De Leon. Nigger, don't let the sun go down on you in this town. Almost immediately, whites don't really notice that the town is not normal, and that an initial incident, in this case a violent expulsion, and a subsequent series of enforcement measures, some violent, were required to achieve and maintain this abnormal result. Decades later, it's even easier to take a town's whiteness for granted. Not everyone moves to sundown towns to avoid African Americans, after all. 
many whites locate in them without even knowing they're sundown towns. Once they've moved in, residents are still less likely to reflect upon the racial composition of their new community. The sun rises in the east and sets in the west, the children go to school, the adults to work, and all seems as it should be. All white town governments, churches, choral groups, audiences, and even school athletic teams come to appear perfectly normal. African Americans come to seem unusual, abnormal, except maybe on television. Children who grow up in sundown towns find it especially easy to develop the sense that it's normal, even proper, to grow up in a place where everyone looks like you, racially, and that blacks are not the same and not really proper. But newcomers, too, rarely challenge the whiteness of their newly chosen communities. Instead, they tend to take on the culture including the political ideology and patterns of race relations into which they move. Carl Withers studied a small Missouri sundown town, Wheatland, in 1940. New settlers still come in, a dozen or two a year in the whole county, he wrote. Those who stay become in remarkably short time just like everybody else here, in speech, dress, mannerisms, attitudes, and general way of life. Most of those who are unable to adjust to the community's mores soon sell out and move away. Jacob Holt, a Dane whose expose on race relations in the United States, American Pictures, was briefly famous in the 1980s, describes Dane's accommodation to racism in the United States. I've met Danish Americans who were red-hot social Democrats back in Denmark, but in the course of just five years had been transformed into the worst reactionaries. Withers's finding that newcomers become just like everybody else holds especially true for new arrivals to sundown suburbs. As Newsweek put it in 1957 during the peak rush to suburbia, when a city dweller packs up and moves his family to the suburbs, he usually acquires a mortgage, a power lawnmower, and a backyard grill. Often, although a lifelong Democrat, he also starts voting Republican. Sometimes families even change their party membership before they move, a pattern sociologists call anticipatory socialization. The same adjustment seems to take place regarding race relations, which explains why sundown towns that were quite small before suburbanization usually stay all white after suburbanization, even though nine-tenths of their populations may now be new arrivals. Sundown acorns produce white oak trees. Socialization to suburbia thus increases the level of racism in metropolitan areas as people move from multiracial cities to all-white suburbs. White Privilege Once living in an all-white town seems normal, residents come to think of it as a right. 
going against this right seems wrong. As we saw in the Enforcement chapter, a person of color who strays into an all-white town looks out of place, even outrageous. A white person who claims that this is not how a town should be can similarly sound out of place, even outrageous. In 1987, Oprah Winfrey, broadcasting from Forsyth County, Georgia, then a sundown county, explored this mentality. Winfrey, you don't believe that people of other races have the right to live here? Unidentified audience member number two. They have the right to live wherever they want to, but we have the right to choose if we want a white community also. That's why we moved here. This viewpoint is hardly confined to places as extreme as Forsyth County, which expelled its African Americans en masse in 1912. White people have the right to keep blacks out of their neighborhoods if they want to, and blacks should respect that right, was one of the opinion statements presented to people by the National Opinion Research Center repeatedly in the 1970s, and in 1976, a representative year, 40% of whites across the nation agreed with the item. Of course, Many of them lived in all-white suburbs and neighborhoods. Striking is audience member number two's we-they terminology. White privilege necessarily involves the creation of a black they, a racial outgroup. Thus, sundown towns increase white racism because they provoke whites to think of a black person not as an individual, but as an African-American first. The file-folder phenomenon rules uncontested. In 1958, sociologist Herbert Bloomer published an important article, Race Prejudice as a Sense of Group Position, pointing out that race prejudice exists basically in a sense of group position rather than in a set of feelings. Bloomer pointed out that viewing prejudice as feelings overlooks and obscures the fact that race prejudice is fundamentally a matter of relationship between racial groups. While feelings are definitely involved, prejudice presupposes that racially prejudiced individuals think of themselves as belonging to a given racial group. It also presupposes that they have an image of the other group against whom they're prejudiced. Bloomer went on to identify four feelings that are involved, of which the third feeling, the sense of proprietary claim, is of crucial importance. Proprietary claim, of course, the right to exclude, is precisely what sundown towns are all about. This new proprietary claim helps explain why sundown towns usually stayed all white for so long. Once whites have concocted the privilege of living in an all-white community, they are then loath to give up this right. Indeed, 
what we might call racial patriotism, keeps them from giving it up. Note the contradiction between the two rights invoked by Winfrey's audience member number two. They have the right to live wherever they want, but we have the right to choose if we want a white community. How do we exercise that right? Obviously by infringing their right to live wherever they want. A white friend unwittingly displayed this same contradiction upon first learning of my research topic. I just can't understand why people would want to live where they're not wanted. This statement seems reasonable, and I tried to answer it reasonably, but it presumes that African Americans can be expected to assess whether whites want them and should comport themselves accordingly. When we, non-blacks, buy a house, we don't assess whether our neighbors will like us. We rarely even meet them before moving in, and if we do, we only meet those right next door. We presume we'll be accepted, or at least tolerated. We also presume the privilege of living wherever we want. My friend's comment doesn't afford African Americans the same right, and instead makes them the problem. They are wrong to intrude. Racist Symbols and Mascots This book is a history of exclusion, yet the excluded are ever-present. They persist in the form of stereotypes and constructions in the minds of those who keep them out. From the nadir until very recently, sundown town residents have been even more likely than other whites to impersonate African Americans in theatrical productions and reviews. After whites in Corbin, Kentucky drove out all African Americans on Halloween in 1919, May Minstrel Festival with black-faced comedians became perhaps its most popular annual event during the 1920s. In Royal Oak, a sundown suburb of Detroit, the Lions Club put on minstrel shows from 1948 to 1968. White residents in blackface performed minstrel shows in all white towns in Wisconsin, Illinois, and Vermont into the 1970s. Even today, residents of sundown towns are much more likely than in interracial towns to display such atavisms as black coach boys or Confederate flags in front of their houses. Students in all white towns in several states have caused disruptions by wearing Confederate flags, T-shirts, and jackets to school. Such incidents also take place in interracial schools, of course, but much less often, because there they'll not go unopposed by other students. Perhaps more worrisome, in some all-white towns, such as Deer Park in eastern Washington, students cause no disruption by wearing or displaying Confederate flags. You can't wear all one color, 
so as to be goths, etc., but you can have Confederate flags on your locker. An in-your-face example of white privilege is the use of racial slurs to name athletic teams, a common practice in sundown towns. For several decades, Pekin High School in central Illinois called its athletic teams chinks, chinklets for the girls. It was supposed to be funny, referring to the town, named for Peking, Beijing, China. The team's previous nickname had been Celestials. When Pekin won the state basketball tournament in 1964 and 1967, the resulting publicity prompted an outcry from outraged Chinese Americans. In 1974, Kong Li Wang, president of the Organization of Chinese Americans, twice flew to Pekin from his Maryland home. He denounced the name as a racist slur met with the mayor, school superintendent, and principals, and addressed the student council. The students then voted 85% to 15% to stick with chinks, and the Board of Education echoed that decision the following spring. Pekin retained chinks until 1980, when a new school superintendent demanded a change, apparently as a condition of his employment. The change then provoked a student walkout that lasted several days. Unfortunately, the school changed its nickname to Dragons, which also conjures not only China, but also leaders of the Ku Klux Klan. That connotation wasn't lost in Pekin, which was notorious as a statewide Klan headquarters in the 1920s. Indeed, the Klan owned the Pekin Times for a while and ran sections of official Klan philosophy as editorials. Today, a Klan leader still lives and recruits in Pekin. Redskins is a more common slur used as nickname, chosen by at least three all-white high schools in Illinois and several others in other states. To be sure, Naming teams with racial slurs is hardly limited to sundown towns, as the Washington Redskins prove. Nevertheless, without attempting the exhausting task of analyzing the mascots of all U.S. high schools against the racial composition of their student bodies, my impression is that all white high schools are more likely to adopt racially derogatory nicknames and mascots and less likely to change them when challenged. Many people of color and their allies hate this practice and have protested it, not only to the owners of the Washington NFL team, but also in small towns such as Sullivan, Illinois. The typical response from sundown towns and from supporters of the Washington team, is to deny that they mean anything racist by the nicknames, and to say that if people choose to interpret them differently, that's their problem. As Pekin graduate Diana Adams wrote about the chinks, I always thought that it was a compliment to those who chose to take it otherwise. Names such as chinks and redskins imply that whites are dominant 
and can use racial slurs anytime they want. Too few Chinese Americans lived in Pekin, and their position was too tenuous to protest. Similarly, American Indians are less than 1% of the population, and the protesters who appear at every home Redskins football game in D.C. are even fewer. So we can do whatever we want. The same sense of privilege holds for displaying a Confederate flag or black coach boy. In interracial towns, whether from fear that such a symbol, or the house behind it, might get vandalized, or from a sincere desire not to offend people of color, whites are less likely to flaunt such items. Context of White Supremacy. That will do it for this week's uh, audio segment. We'll pick up next week, Section 12, Making Progress, but a ways to go still. The number to dial, 605-313-5164. The code, 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. Folks who dialed in with a hand up line should be open. If you did not get to participate during the first audio segment, you should definitely get your hand up immediately. Do not wait till the last minute. Uh, make sure that we don't miss anybody uh, who has comments, uh, questions uh, that they would like to share. Uh, again, all the folks who dialed in with a hand up. Line should be open. Feel free to proceed. Can I be heard? Yes, sir. Retired firefighter. Yes. Uh, I observed in this reading a lot of inaccurate words to describe the system of racism, white supremacy, and its procedures and and uh, tactics. Uh, of course, you kept hearing the word white privilege a lot uh, during this particular reading to describe the uh, powerful uh, results of white people mistreating non-white people. Uh, also, uh, I uh, think I observed uh, the writer stating, which I disagree with him on, uh, stating that uh, white people who grow up in these type of towns uh, somehow are uh, uh, basically are, are not fully uh, uh, prepared to adjust into, uh, uh, I guess, employment or, or whatever as far as to be a successful, quote-unquote, white person under the system of racist white supremacy. If you grow up in a uh, sundown town somehow as a white person under the system of racist white supremacy, you would be damaged, <laughs> and uh, which really doesn't make any sense to me at all. Uh, uh, he, uh, I think he kept referencing uh, uh, black towns or black schools and 
And actually, under the system of racist white supremacy, there's no such thing. It may be areas where non-white people are forced to uh, reside or stay, uh, which is actually the theme of the book itself. Uh, so it just shows a whole lot of inconsistencies in his uh, in his report, uh, which is typical of a white person. I suspect that he, therefore, is practicing racism by purposely not being accurate in uh, the analysis of what he's talking about in his book. He provides a lot of information, but the way that he is packaging the information uh, in the most shrewd and slightest ways, uh, I suspect he's practicing racist white supremacy. And oh, I even heard the last but not least, I heard the I heard the word obtuse, obtuse, which Mister Fuller brings up every time when he speaks about uh, the uh, the movie that uh, has a lot of lessons in white supremacy. Shawshank uh, When the warden in the movie... Yeah, Shawshank Redemption. I've, I've heard that word in, in, the, in this particular reading also. And uh, I thought that was uh, interesting. Uh, but uh, that's my report. Thank you. Much obliged, retired firefighter. Uh, other folks who dialed in, if you have a hand up, if you have commentary to share, proceed. While folks are taking their time, get their thoughts together uh, from the second audio segment, I'll share a few of the notes that I took uh, during the section and I'll check back in. Nigger rabbit, he just picked up right where the previous section ended. Uh, snowball and rags, and then nigger rabbit. Well, it wasn't, it was rabbit. Nigger rabbit uh, is what this one black person uh, who was allowed to stay there. Uh, this is in a small portion of Alabama. Uh, they said uh, he lived there until he died, talking about nigger rabbit. Uh, These lone African-Americans had better be liked by all because if one person doesn't, even if one person merely doesn't know who they are, they may be in danger. That, I thought, very accurate statement Uh, could be the case. Even 2019 uh, right now, system of racism, uh, white supremacy. Uh, Then he comes back. Same paragraph. He says it's hard for other whites to come to the defense of the person of color whites who do may risk being called nigger lovers and accused of the opposite of racial patriotism. Now that might just be a highfalutin way of saying that white people will get in trouble with other white people. If they violate the codes of racism, white supremacy, which I totally believe is true. However, I don't think that that is the reason that white people don't come to the aid of black people. I don't think most whites White women, white men, white children, uh, 1818 or 2019, I do not think that they are concerned about the well-being of Negroes. They've just sat around and called them pet coons and rags and all the rest of it. I don't think they are concerned with the well-being of Negroes. So there is no conflict of interest. Uh, 
same page. He says Elizabeth Davis was locally famous as Nigger Liz, the best midwife in Clark County and the only African-American allowed to live in Casey. Uh, prenatal yoga instructor pointed that out. And then he says that she let them call her Nigger Liz. That I thought, in my view, uh, excuse me, I picked the wrong person. So next page over is Aunt Vine, not Miss uh, Elizabeth here. Uh, So her full name, and he goes into detail about why black people would make sure that their full name was known. As he just stated, you can't be a stranger. Got to make sure that all these racists are away. I know you don't allow niggers here, but I'm the one exception. I am all right. Got to be known. Uh, and he said that her name was Electa Caledonia Melvinia Smith. Really unique handle, right? And then he goes on to say, but she also let whites call her Aunt Vine, which played along with the inferior status connoted by uncle and auntie as applied to older African-Americans. Now, I've said this, uh, I've pointed this out for years when people say this about any non-white person victim of racism, that we allow whites to do such and such, that we let them do such and such. All of those are inaccurate terms. Anytime a white person does it, like Mr. Lowen here, in my view, that's an act of racism, deliberate. Uh, I'll give the full name again, not the racism. Electa Caledonia Melvina Smith was a victim of racism, a victim of terrorism. She, like any other logical victim, would do anything that you can to try to survive. And even if she said, no, I want you to call full title, pronounce it correctly and everything, accents, you know, over the correct letter and all of that. Does she have an army to battle a whole town and demand you're not going to call me Aunt Vine? I mean, come on, that's totally incorrect word. And I hear that uh, many other victims talk about how we let and allow racists to do things. That's totally inaccurate. Uh, It's blaming the victim. It's just not recognizing correct power dynamics. Uh, Next. uh, Oh, my goodness. uh, When he's talking, or I guess quoting some of the interviews that were gathered, this is a white woman in Indiana uh, where she says, uh, you get, yeah, we've heard all that. You get several of them together, black people, and they become niggers individually. They're fine people, whatever that means. I've heard that sort of logic before that they can tolerate maybe one black person isolated, but once you get three to up, the niggers, we've got too many niggers. Uh, I had other notes. I'll pause for a moment. Uh, any of our other folks who dialed in with a hand up, do you all have comments, questions you want to share on the second audio segment? May I be heard? Greetings, Red in Nevada. Um, I did actually make a note of the nigger Liz, the midwife. Um, I thought, again, it was kind of interesting how this is another example of him saying how she had so much, I guess, clout. Um, and this is from the file folder section. It says, nigger Liz, the midwife, she could not afford to be a little-known member of her race because then she would be filed as black first. I feel like if her name is nigger, her tech, you know, by what white people are calling her, she is being filed as black first. 
So I, I didn't think that that sentence made sense or that part of the sentence made sense at all. Uh, the other notes that I took, again, um, with the stone throwing in reference to Fred Clark, uh, who lived in, I think that was a West Lawn. Uh, yes, uh, West Lawn with his wife, who they tried to sell their house because they kept their house kept getting, um, they kept getting rocks thrown into their windows and everything like that. And then Mary, the wife, says, you know, once they found out there were blacks that lived there, they couldn't sell the house anyway. But he later on went to, you know, as he would take walks, and no matter how docile he was, they, you know, they threw rocks, but at least he wasn't serious. Uh, there, he didn't get any serious harm from that. Again, it just seems like these things are kind of overlooked. I don't think anyone, you know, should tolerate or uh, rock, not tolerate, not, not saying anything against the victim, but it's like these can still be harmful. I don't know what he means by serious. I guess that would be the best, the, the better question. What is his definition of serious harm? Uh, another thing that I pointed out was uh, there was only, it seems like this is one of the, the next thing I pointed out, uh, which is uh, similarly, the solitary black household allowed as the exception in a sundown town can humanize that community to a degree. And I feel like this is one of the rare instances where he kind of um, makes black people seem as if, you know, we are human and the white races around are inhuman. Um, that, at least that's how I took that sentence. But he follows it up with, you know, more nigger this, and then even uh, preceding that, you know, more nigger that. There was the uh, quoting of the black female about one of the exceptions in Greenwood, how um, the black female said that the whites just love the black family and they did not let any harm come to them. But how would this black female know exactly everything that this black this black family knew? And this is, I feel like this is inaccurately uh, reporting on what this black family actually went through. I feel like this should have been, this is another instance where black people, it kind of reminds me of a, a white person being asked, is this, uh, I'm sorry, a black person being asked by a white person is another white person racist. I think that you should speak to other white people who are experts on the on the issue. Uh, there was more referencing black people as, as animals, the squab Williamson, I'm sorry, squab Williams. I'm sorry, squab Wilson, the barber. And uh, the first part of chapter 11, where the white mother is teaching her white daughter when to behave um, outwardly racist. I thought that was a, a really good, um, example of how white women play, how they play their role in rearing these races. And I'll try to make these other ones quick. With the whole white people moving out, uh, the younger white people moving out of these all white cities or towns or what have you, because it lacked diversity, I felt like that kind of made no sense because then later on in that same chapter or area, he says that they move back, or I'm sorry, he says that white people, they move from these multiple, I'm sorry, 
um, multiracial cities to all white suburbs. So I feel like these white people, they, I, I, of course, he doesn't say if the where these white people were reared, who moved to these all white suburbs from these multi, multi sorry, multiracial cities. But it kind of seems like these two things kind of contradict themselves. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if some of the white people who move from the all white towns move to the city and then move back into a, a suburb. Uh, I, uh, the last thing I wanted to share was his conversation after the whole uh, Oprah Winfrey part of it uh, in, in this, in the same chapter, he when he speaks about his white friend, um, he said a white friend unwittingly displayed the same contradiction upon first learning of my research topic. And then he says he tries to um, when the white friend says, "I just can't understand." Yeah, I just can't understand why people would want to live where they're not wanted. And he says how this is reasonable and how he tried to answer him reasonably. And I thought that he was going to elaborate on exactly what he told the friend, but of course he didn't. I thought that was another act of racism. Uh, and I'll mute my line. Thank you. Great points. Uh, once again, read in Nevada. Uh, other folks who chimed in, if you have a comment, question uh, from the second audio segment, proceed. Yes, may I be heard? Mr. Demery Four. Okay, yes. I'd like to uh, first point out, he was talking about a docile attitude, um, and that's expected of blacks by whites. Uh, it led you to believe that if you were a black person and you had this subservient uh, type, manner, then you may um, come out better than, I guess, a person that was more assertive or that um, acted more self-assured. Uh, <clears throat> like the last call pointed out, the white woman, um, well, you, uh, you pointed out, the white woman said that uh, while I guess the blacks are alone, that they are decent or they're all right, but you get two or three of them together and then they become niggers. And that is a common um, pattern at whites. You know, they seem to discourage congregating of blacks, like it's some um, threat to that. And he mentioned uh, Greenwood, Illinois, I guess was legendary and terrorizing blacks and keeping them out. I was just wondering, uh, since I don't have a book, if there was a footnote, you know, concerning <clears throat> that, um, you know, I mean, like you said, how would he gauge, you know, whether it was legendary or not? And, um, of course, female caller mentioned the mother teaching uh, the child, you know, when to, say Negro and when to say nigger, I guess any, any other time niggers. Okay. But in this town, uh, we say Negro, I guess, to lead them to believe that, you know, in certain situations, you don't just 
<clears throat> blurt this out. It was some, uh, uh, you know, he was mixing gays and lesbians in with uh, uh, the terrorizing that uh, blacks encounter. So he's, com- you know, conflating it. Or <clears throat> I may not be saying the word correctly, but thinking that uh, <clears throat> that there's nothing wrong with an all-white town. If a white person growing up in a white, all-white town, and he don't think there's nothing wrong with that, you're looking around, that in itself is racist. So um, he also mentioned the black barber who would not cut the hair of another black person. Um, it's like you said, uh, those terms that we use a lot of times come from racist man. So a lot of the attitudes and behaviors that we adopt also comes from racist man. And he mentioned uh, schools and organizations that have racist mascots. And and I guess he said that if you're an all-white school, then you are far more likely to have a racist mascot. But even if <clears throat> whites are confronted with the offense, they never seem to change. And then uh, when he brought up the examples of the NFL team, the Redskins, um, that's not an all-white organization. And, <laughs> you know, so I don't see any uh, – well, I guess it could be true that all-white schools would be more likely to have that mascot, but it looks like they'll do whatever they want to do. And then uh, they'll actually tell you, I guess when they was confronted, that it it was just the opposite. It's a compliment to them. And uh, I'll mute my line with that, Gus. Thanks for taking the call. Much obliged, Mr. Demry Four. Grand commentary as usual, uh, everybody. Um, I also I thought that with Fred Clark, uh, his docile attitude. I thought that uh, that is a direct quote. Those aren't Mr. Lowen's uh, words. This docile attitude that Fred Clark had. This another rock throwing incident. Lots of rock throwing uh, in the text. Uh, again, going back to Red's point about how you gauge what serious harm is, and then apparently his. Docile attitude didn't keep him that safe because he still had rocks hurled at him amongst all the other insults that we probably didn't get included in the text. Um, What a metaphor. My goodness. He says. This is a page over. Similarly, the solitary black household allowed as the exception in a sundown town can humanize that community to a degree. At least whites have made a distinction among African-Americans if only to separate one separate out one or two Tonto figures from the otherwise backward horde. Uh, I thought that was quite a racist metaphor. Uh, I think that's the Lone Ranger uh, from way, way back television character, racist stereotype. Uh, I think he could have picked a better way of articulating that they can, you know, select one or two victims. They're still victims, but we'll select these and say, okay, you'll be the well-treated, you know, niggers of the, of the group. Uh, there is no footnote when he said, uh, Greenwood, Indiana, 
for example, a town whose hostility towards African-Americans was legendary. I was looking for the footnote on that one, too. How would you uh, quantify such a such a claim? Uh, next. Squab Wilson. I didn't know what that meant, so I looked it up. Squab, a young unfledged pigeon. Two, a thick stuffed cushion, especially one covering the seat of a chair sofa. Uh, also, the flesh of a young pigeon as food. Delectable Negro, maybe? Jim Crow? Uh, then, for adjective, short and fat. So, again, animal reference, pigeon, Jim Crow, as I said, and then short and fat black person. Now, they mentioned before uh, having a dwarf, having someone kind of diminutive in stature, so it can be the literal and figuratively this person is underneath us kind of a representation could be the same thing with squab wilson the barber to be an honorary white man that's in the word god not to use the term honorary white squab wilson is not a so-called honorary white man he's a victim of white supremacy accurate to come back to the same thing accurate words uh afraid of losing his this honor and perhaps his white clientele and his permission to live in marshall Wilson refused to cut the hair of a black writer living temporarily at the nearby Handy Writers Colony until novelist James Jones threatened him with a boycott. I can totally understand how that sort of thing happens. Whites are most to blame for that. And I mean, my goodness, you're the only black person living in a concentration camp in this town. I would be real nervous about interacting with other black people, too. Um, Great point. I thought, Red, I had the same note explaining it's so prevalent in this book that white children are the administrators or at least are key administrators in this system. There's so many examples uh, of their uh, involvement. Uh, the white privilege chapter, I thought that was, you know, the retired firefighter pointed that out. I guess uh, the only quick things that I'll say about that, I've said for years not to use that term. Um, when he talked about white people switching parties, and if they had been lifelong Democrats, they would become a Republican if they moved to one of these white suburbs, sundown towns. Uh, it, again, that is dangerously confusing. They called the Democratic Party the party of the white man, the white supremacy party. Uh, that is uh, Benjamin Pitchfork Tillman, Democrat, race soldier, white terrorist, uh, as though you can't be a Democrat, as though you cannot be white. Vote for President Obama, Bill Clinton. JFK or any other Democrat uh, and still practice racism, white supremacy. I thought that was dangerous. And also, man, the the, the uh, metaphors abounded. He said sundown acorns produce white oak trees. No idea what that means. Uh, the festivals that he mentioned, uh, the menstrual May menstrual festival, Nick, uh, delectable Negro consumption of black people. I know Dr. Welsing would have quite a bit to say about that as well. And I thought it was so important, again, that the children administering white supremacy when they're going to vote. All right, we're going to no longer call them chinks. We're going to change this mascot. Let's put it to a vote. And the students, the white students voted 85% to 15 to stick with chinks. And the Board of Education echoed that decision the following spring. Wow. Racist man, racist woman, Racist, And in fact, they had some of the footnotes that were included in this section. He talked about how the Klan had an aggressive campaign to recruit uh, white teens uh, after all of or maybe before, during and after all of this. But 
white children, they are not ignorant. White people cannot be ignorant about racism, white supremacy. And that's one thing that this book has proven over and over and over again. And it's not white adults. We're not even talking about that. It's obviously that they're not ignorant about all of this. The white children are not ignorant because they are being asked to play their role uh, as race soldiers. And I'll stop there. Uh, yeah, that was 85%. Anywho, um, we will be back next week uh, to continue with the text. We'll be here tomorrow for Workplace Racism, same time, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. Uh, did we miss anybody? Any final thought before we conclude? Are everyone satisfied? Uh, can I be heard? Yes, sir. Uh, I, I just have been uh, thinking all the while in reading this book and uh, on how in cinema, the movie uh, that starred Sidney Poitier uh, uh, was a, it showed a lot of examples similar to this book uh, of a sundown town uh, when he played a, a, a enforcement official that was in, uh, visiting uh, his mother or somebody. And uh, in turn, uh, early in the movie, he was uh, arrested <laughs> in, in a bus stop, uh, apparently because he was uh, on the wrong side of town at uh, the sundown. Uh, Heat of the Night, that's, that's the name of the movie, uh, if anybody wanted to know. Uh, uh, all through the movie, you, you, you see some of the same examples that this book was reporting on. Uh, and also one strange thing, uh, uh, that, uh, is probably significant today. Uh, a lot of the, uh, illegal, uh, activity type of, uh, uh, likes that white people engage in such as prostitution, uh, uh, drugs and whatnot are normally in areas where non-white black people stay at another situation as we speak, is going on in uh, Alabama uh, with a, with uh, the abortion uh, laws changing. And during back, you know, years ago, it normally was a black person that uh, definitely uh, veered off the book. Now, oh, I was I was just speaking about I was just speaking from the standpoint about uh, about uh, the different uh, illicit uh, uh, jobs or tasks that uh, white people uh, eliminate out of their areas and put into the areas where black people are at and how uh, those things uh, are continuously going to be relevant to white people using. For sure. He, did, he did talk about that uh, in the book, uh, retired firefighter, but exactly the point that you just made about having all the illicit activities and such, uh, piling those up in black areas, prostitution. I think he made that point several times, uh, that you just stated throughout the, throughout the text, sir. Even, um, the, even the person that administers abortions, that's going to be needed again in Alabama. White females cheating on their husbands and getting pregnant, you know, that sort of thing. They're going to be needing, I guess that, that job again to be done. I reckon have to see how all that functions 2019. But uh, folks, if you all have 
thoughts on the abortion issue uh, for the compensatory call in Saturday, 9 p.m. Eastern, 6 p.m. Pacific. Uh, absolutely. Uh, we will set aside, make time. I think some folks might even say that has something to do with white genetic annihilation uh, and fertility rates. But for Saturday, uh, anywho. Can I say, excuse me, uh, can I say one last thing? 30 seconds. One, one sentence. Okay. <clears throat> he mentioned that when a person, when a black person first comes to town, the first thing that they ask them is, do they know the reputation of the town? I thought that was hogwash. <laughs> I'll mute my line. <laughs> uh, for sure. For sure. Uh, Mr. Demery for, uh, that will do it for this week. Uh, but again, we are not done with the text. So if you have, uh, additional comments, questions, thoughts, something doesn't make sense, uh, as we continue to read, email it in and we'll have time. We can read your comments, uh, as we move through the text. Uh, with that, we will catch everyone tomorrow. Sobriety would be best under conditions of white terrorism. Let's preserve our brain computers so that we can try to stay as safe as we can under extremely dangerous conditions. I think sobriety more than being docile will keep you safe. In addition to being sober, let's be buckled up every time we are in a vehicle, driver, passenger, even if you're a pedestrian. Uh, let's do all that we can to avoid contact, minimize contact with race soldiers, badge or no. And if we are in a vehicle, if you're driving specifically, try to stay off that cell phone. Uh, they will be looking for any excuses to cause trouble for us. Be mindful of that at all times. With that, creator, we ask that you help us remain patient with other black people, victims of white supremacy. We ask that you help us remain patient with ourselves remind us to demonstrate the highest levels of black self-respect at all times in all places each and every time we are in contact with another black person it has been time replace white supremacy with justice immediately cows signing out thanks all for tuning in Nigga, you so brainwashed. I'm a victim, What's your brother. Problem? You're a victim. Man, I'm a up. victim of 400 years of conditioning. Shut up. The man has programmed my conditioning. Mm -hmm. Even my conditioning has been conditioned. <laughs> With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.